Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real Talk, Black Talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Zora Neale Hurston, the legendary writer from the Harlem Renaissance, has a new book. Actually, it's an old book that's only now being published. It's called Barracoon, and it's based on a series of conversations that she had with Cujo Lewis. Lewis came to this country aboard the last ship that brought slaves across the Atlantic. And Piers Neary has the story. When Zora Neale Hurston first met Cudjo Lewis at his home in Alabama, she called him by his African name, Kosala. Though he was an old man, he was thrilled to hear it again. As one of the last slaves to be brought to this country aboard an illegal vessel, Lewis still had many memories of his life in Africa. Deborah Plant, who edited Barracoon, says that makes the book special because most slave narratives focus on life in this country. It is so unusual. It makes Barracoon a national treasure. It's a national treasure that has spent more than 60 years in Howard University's library, where only scholars had access to it. Tracy Sherrod is editorial director of Amistad at HarperCollins, which is now publishing the book. She says Hurston tried to get it published back in the 1930s, but the manuscript was rejected. They wanted to publish it, but they wanted Zora to change the language so it wasn't written in dialect and more in standard English, and she refused to do so. Hurston refused, says Deborah Plant, because she understood that Lewis's language was key to understanding him. We're talking about a language that he had to fashion for himself in order to negotiate this new terrain he found himself in. In this excerpt from the audiobook, Lewis describes what it was like to arrive in this strange new country. We don't know why we bring weight from our country to work like this. It's strange to us. Everybody looking at us strange. We want to talk with the other colored folks, but they don't know what we say. Embedded in his language is everything of his history. To deny him his language 
is to deny his history, to deny his experience, which is ultimately to deny him, period, to deny what happened to him. What happened to him was horrific. He describes in graphic detail the day his village was raided by another tribe. It was a brutal massacre, and those who survived were sold as slaves. But Lewis also remembered his village before the massacre, like the day he saw a group of young girls in the market. Oh, they look very fine to cudgel when they walk here. They sling their arms so, and the bracelet ring. I like hear that. It sounds so pretty. One day, I see one girl I like very much to marry but are too young to take a wife. Barracoon, says Plant, is not only about the brutality of slavery and its aftermath in this country, it's about the pain of what was lost and left behind. Being taken away from everything you ever knew, never to see it again, never ever to know what became of your family, your community, that's terrifying, it's traumatic, it's heartbreaking. Plant says that pain stayed with Lewis for his whole life. So often in the interviewing process, he would weep or he would be so lost in the memories of what happened to him, he could not speak. Kajo Lewis, says Tracy Sherrod, was a vivid storyteller. His language, she says, is not hard to understand. To her, it sounds familiar. It made me feel incredibly connected to him because I saw patterns in his speech, words that he used, that my grandparents used, and it really felt like a coming home. Sherrod believes Zora Neale Hurston would be happy that the book has finally gotten published and that Kajo Lewis's photo is on the cover. Lynn Neary, NPR News. Washington. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, August 3rd, 2018. So I have been told uh, this is our debut study session on Zora Neale Hurston's 2018 publication, Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. You can put an asterisk next to the publication date, 2018, but we will discuss that down the road. Anyway, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, she is widely recognized as an extraordinary writer. She is a part of uh, what is called the Harlem Renaissance, along with uh, Ralph Ellison, many other black writers who did a a prolific amount of writing uh, during that period uh, in the 20th century. Uh, I think a lot of people, for Zora Neale Hurston, her most popular work is Their Eyes Were Watching God. I think a lot of folks are required to read that in school. Uh, It was made into a film uh, some years back. Uh, I think it's interesting. I was researching, preparing for this book, and Zora Neale Hurston, she was born in 1891. She died in 1960 and she died. She did not have a lot of money. She was not, you know, a a famous and rich author at the time of her passing. And she died. She was in an unmarked grave. Uh, It's just uh, more recently that her work has gotten uh, more attention uh, for all of her brilliance. But this book in particular, I also did not know, in addition to being a prolific writer, she was an anthropologist. Uh, That is a big part of of how this particular book that we're going to read, Barracoon, came to be her tracking down uh, Cujo Lewis to tell his story. I'm sure there are some folks who might think that uh, this is somehow reinforcing the system of racism, white supremacy, so we can pay attention to that 
as we read. Uh, but since this book is so short, we'll go ahead and get started and then we can share commentary as we go. But Zora Neale Hurston's Barakun, the story of the last black cargo. Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Harper Audio presents Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo by Zora Neale Hurston. Edited and with an introduction by Deborah G. Plant. Performed by Robin Miles. Introduction by Deborah G. Plant On December 14, 1927, Zora Neale Hurston took the 3.40 p.m. train from Penn Station, New York, to Mobile to conduct a series of interviews with the last surviving African of the last American slaver, the Clotilda. His name was Kozola, but he was called Kajo Lewis. He was held as a slave for five and a half years in Plateau Magazine Point, Alabama, from 1860 until Union soldiers told him he was free. Kozula lived out the rest of his life in Africatown, Plateau. Hurston's trip south was a continuation of the field trip expedition she had initiated the previous year. Oluwale Kozula had survived capture at the hands of Dahomean warriors, the barracoons at Widda, and the Middle Passage. He had been enslaved, he had lived through the Civil War, and the largely unreconstructed South, and he had endured the rule of Jim Crow. He had experienced the dawn of a new millennium that included World War I and the Great Depression. Within the magnitude of world events swirled the momentous events of Kozula's own personal world. Zora Neale Hurston, as a cultural anthropologist, ethnographer, and folklorist, was eager to inquire into his experiences. I want to know who you are, she approached Kazula, and how you came to be a slave, and to what part of Africa do you belong, and how you fared as a slave, and how you have managed as a free man. Kazula absorbed her every question, then raised a tearful countenance. Thank ye, Jesus. Somebody come ask about Kudjo. I won't tell it somebody who I is. So maybe they go into Africa's soil some day and call him my name, and somebody say, yeah, I know Kazula. Over a period of three months, Hurston visited with Kazula. She brought Georgia peaches, Virginia hams, late summer watermelons, and bee brand insect powder. The offerings were as much a currency to facilitate their blossoming friendship as a means to encourage Kazula's reminiscences. Much of his life was a sequence of separations. Sweet things can be palliative. Kazula trusted Hurston to tell his story and transmit it to the world. Others had interviewed Kazula and had written pieces that focused on him, or more generally on the community of survivors at Africatown. 
but only Zora Neale Hurston, conducted extensive interviews that would yield a comprehensive, book-length account of Kazula's life. She would alternately title the work Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo, and The Life of Kazula. As with the other interviews, Kasula hoped the story he entrusted to Hurston would reach his people, for whom he was still lonely. The disconnection he experienced was a source of continuous distress. Origins Kasula was born circa 1841 in the town of Bante, the home to the Isha subgroup of the Yoruba people of West Africa. He was the second child of Fondlulu, who was the second of his father's three wives. His mother named him Kozula, meaning, I do not lose my fruits anymore, or my children do not die anymore. His mother would have four more children after Kozula, and he would have twelve additional siblings from his extended family. Fondlulu's name identified her as one who had been initiated as an Orisha devotee. His father was called Oluwale. Though his father was not of royal heritage, as Olu, which means king or chief, would imply, Kozula's grandfather was an officer of the king of their town and had land and livestock. By age 14, Kozula had trained as a soldier, which entailed mastering the skills of hunting, camping, and tracking, and acquiring expertise in shooting arrows and throwing spears. This training prepared him for induction into the secret male society called Oro. This society was responsible for the dispensation of justice and the security of the town. The Isha Yoruba of Bante lived in an agricultural society and were a peaceful people. Thus, the training of young men in the art of warfare was a strategic defense against bellicose nations. At age 19, Kazula was undergoing initiation for marriage. But these rites would never be realized. It was 1860, and the world Kozula knew was coming to an abrupt end. Transatlantic Trafficking By the mid-19th century, the Atlantic world had already penetrated the African hinterland. And although Britain had abolished the international trafficking of African peoples— or what is typically referred to as the transatlantic slave trade in 1807, and although the United States had followed suit in 1808, European and American ships were still finding their way to ports along the West African coast to conduct what was now deemed illegitimate trade. Laws had been passed and treaties had been signed, but half a century later, the deportation of Africans out of Africa and into the Americas continued. France and the United States had joined forces with British efforts to suppress the traffic. However, it was a largely British-led effort, and the U.S. patrols proved to be ambivalent and not infrequently at cross-purposes with the abolitionist agenda. Habituated to the lucrative enterprise of trafficking and encouraged by the relative ease with which they could find buyers for their captives, Africans opposed to ending the traffic persisted in the enterprise. The Fawn of Dahomey was foremost among those African peoples who resisted the suppression. 
not only was the internal enslavement of their prisoners perceived as essential to their traditions and customs, the external cell of their prisoners afforded their kingdom wealth and political dominance. To maintain a sufficient slave supply, the king of Dahomey instigated wars and led raids with the sole purpose of filling the royal stockade. King Gezo of Dahomey renounced his 1852 treaty to abolish the traffic, and by 1857 had resumed his wars and raids. Reports of his activities had reached the newspapers of Mobile, Alabama. A November 9, 1858 article announced that the king of Dahomey was driving a brisk trade at Widda. This article caught the attention of Timothy Mayer, a slaveholder who, like many pro-slavery Americans, wanted to maintain the transatlantic traffic. In defiance of constitutional law, Mayer decided to import Africans illegally into the country and enslave them. In conspiracy with Mayer, William Foster, who built the Clotilda, outfitted the ship for transport of the contraband cargo. In July 1860, he navigated toward the Bight of Benin. After six weeks of surviving storms and avoiding being overtaken by ships patrolling the waters, Foster anchored the Clotilda at the port of Widda. Barracoon From 1801 to 1866, an estimated 3,873,600 Africans were exchanged for gold, guns, and other European and American merchandise. Of that number, approximately 444,700 were deported from the Bight of Benin, which was controlled by Dahomey. During the period from 1851 to 1860, approximately 22,500 Africans were exported, and of that number, 110 were taken aboard the Clotilda at Widda. Kozula was among them, a transaction between Foster and King Glele. In 1859, Kingezo was mortally shot while returning from one of his campaigns. His son, Bado Hun, had ascended to the throne. He was called Glele, which means the ferocious lion of the forest, or terror in the bush. To avenge his father's death, as well as to amass sacrificial bodies for certain imminent traditional ceremonies, Glele intensified the raiding campaigns. Under the pretext of having been insulted when the king of Bante refused to yield to Glele's demands for corn and cattle, Glele sacked the town. Kozulo described to Hurston the mayhem that ensued in the pre-dawn raid when his townspeople awoke to Dahomey's female warriors who slaughtered them in their days. Those who tried to escape through the eight gates that surrounded the town were beheaded by the male warriors who were posted there. Kozula recalled the horror of seeing decapitated heads hanging about the belts of the warriors, and how on the second day, the warriors stopped the march in order to smoke the heads. Through the clouds of smoke, he missed seeing the heads of his family and townspeople. It is easy to see how few would have looked on that sight too closely, wrote a sympathetic Hurston along with a host of others taken as captives by the Dahomeyan warriors. The survivors of the Bante massacre were yoked by forked sticks and tied in a chain. 
then marched to the stockades at Abomi. After three days, they were incarcerated in the barracoons at Widda, near the Bight of Benin. During the weeks of his existence in the barracoons, Kusula was bewildered and anxious about his fate. Before him was a thunderous and crashing ocean that he had never seen before. Behind him was everything he called home. There in the barracoon, as there in his Alabama home, Kusula was transfixed between two worlds, fully belonging to neither. Kudjo's Own Story Prior to their December 1927 meeting, Hurston had interviewed Kuzula once before. As she states in her introduction to Barracoon, I had met Kudjo Lewis for the first time in July 1927. I was sent by Dr. Franz Boas to get a first-hand report of the raid that had brought him to America and bondage for Dr. Carter G. Woodson of the Journal of Negro History. From February to August of 1927, Hurston conducted field work in Florida and Alabama under the direction of Franz Boas, her mentor, the renowned father of American anthropology. Boas had early on approached Woodson, the father of black history, about a fellowship for Hurston in support of the research. In accordance with their arrangements, Hurston was to collect black folk materials for Boas and scout around for undiscovered black folk artists. In addition to the gathering of historical data for Woodson, she was also to collect Kozula's story. Woodson supported Hurston's field research with a $1,400 fellowship. Half of the funds came from the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, an organization founded and directed by Woodson. Elsie Clues Parsons of the American Folklore Society granted matching funds. As a fellow and investigator for the association, Hurston was expected to contribute material to the Journal of Negro History, a publication of the association. During the latter part of her time in the field, Hurston drove to Plateau, Alabama, to undertake her last task for Woodson and conduct the interview with Kozula. Along with various reports and archival data, Hurston submitted to Woodson materials she had collected on Fort Mose, a black settlement in St. Augustine, Florida. Woodson published this material as an article entitled Communications in the October 1927 issue of the journal. In the same issue, he published Hurston's Kusula interview as Kudjo's own story of the last African slaver. A footnote at the beginning of the article stated that, as an investigator of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, Zora Neale Hurston had traveled to Mobile to interview Lewis, the only survivor of this last cargo. The note states further, she made some use, too, of the voyage of Clotilda and other records of the Mobile Historical Society. In reality, Hurston made more than a little use of the Society's records, and though part of the article was a first-hand report, the larger portion of the article was second-hand information drawn from Emma Langdon Roche's Historic Sketches of the South, 1914. Emma Roche was a writer, artist, and farmer born in Alabama in 1878. Her book is an account of the origins of slavery in America, 
couched in pro-slavery tenets and paternalistic perspectives. Her narrative recounts the history of the Clotilda and follows the fate of the Africans who were stored in its hold. Only decades later would the literary critic and Hurston biographer Robert Hemingway bring the matter of Hurston's borrowing to scholarly attention and discussion. Hemingway credits the findings to the linguist William Stewart, who discerned it in 1972. Stewart's discovery was conveyed to me, Hemingway noted in Zora Neale Hurston, a literary biography, by John Swed of the University of Pennsylvania. I am grateful to Professor Stewart for granting me permission to cite his research and findings. Though the footnote in her 1927 article acknowledges the Mobile Historical Society as a secondary source, it does not reference historic sketches specifically, and Hurston makes no direct reference to Roche's book within the body of the article itself. Rather, improperly documented paraphrased passages and near-verbatim appropriations from Roche's work constitute the larger part of the article. Of the 67 paragraphs in Hurston's essay, Hemingway relates only 18 are exclusively her own prose. Hemingway speculates that Hurston found her interview with Kusula lacking in original material and therefore resorted to the use of Roche's work to supplement it. He supposes, too, that Hurston, writing at the outset of her career, suffered a quandary of purpose, direction, and methodology. How exactly was she to introduce the world to African-American folklore, which she perceived to be the greatest cultural wealth on the continent? Hemingway observed that Hurston, as one of the folk herself, struggled to negotiate the sociocultural chasm between her rural hometown of Eatonville, Florida, and the wealthy enclaves of New York City. He believed that her frustration with the academic study and presentation of the African-American folk and folk culture was a reflection of the same struggle. Hurston had imbibed Boaz's theory of cultural relativity and understood that there were no superior or inferior cultures. She understood that cultures were to be assessed and evaluated on their own terms. But were the methods of Boaz and Woodson conducive to her purposes? Was it possible that the repertorial precision of Western scientific investigation could be the means by which she would document and celebrate African-American genius and thereby challenge European imperialism and Euro-American cultural hegemony? Or did she believe, as did poet Audre Lorde, that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. In a letter to her friend Thomas Jones, the president of Fisk University, Hurston articulated her conundrum. Returned to New York and began to rewrite and arrange the material for scientific publications, and while doing so, began to see the pity of all the flaming glory of being buried in scientific journals. She was dubious about Boaz's objective observer approach to folklore collection, and she chafed under Woodson's brand of scholarship. She preferred to be in the field, writes Hemingway, and so resented the time she spent investigating court records and mindlessly transcribing historical documents. Nonetheless, 
Hemingway wondered why Hurston would risk her career and whether her plagiaristic use of Roche's work was an unconscious attempt at academic suicide. This attempt, Hemingway concludes, is made because of a lack of respect for the writing one has to do. If detected and her scientific integrity destroyed, Hurston's academic career would have been finished. She would then have been free from Boaz's admonitions and Woodson's demands and the unglamorous labor of collecting folklore. Is it possible, Hemingway speculates further, that footnotes referencing Roche had been included but were lost or otherwise omitted from the other records to which the article's footnote alludes? In any case... Hemingway states that Hurston's career needs no absurd apologetics. She never plagiarized again. She became a major folklore collector. Hurston's biographer Valerie Boyd has proposed that even though Hurston resented the hack work she did for Woodson, it is also just as likely that Hurston believed the report was only for Woodson's files. She did not expect it to be published, any more than she thought her transcribed communication was worthy of publication. The communications article was a compilation of transcribed excerpts from letters and historical and congressional documents strung together with brief transitional statements. This style of reporting bears comparison with the composition of Kudjo's own story. Boyd wondered whether Hurston's submission of material that contained only 25% of her original work might have been Hurston's way of getting back at Woodson for arbitrarily slicing her pay and cutting into her research time by having her do his dreck work. Hurston had complained to her friend, the poet Langston Hughes, that she had finished her work for Woodson but wasn't paid in full. I thought I'd get paid for the month, but he only paid me for two weeks. She vented to Hughes and told him that she felt depressed about the matter. As Hemingway conjectured that Hurston may have saved the juicy bits of her folklore finds for theatrical collaborations with Langston Hughes, Boyd conjectured that Hurston had resolved to save her most compelling material from Kajo Lewis for her own work. Kozula had gained some celebrity as the last living survivor of the Clotilda. Other anthropologists, folklorists, historians, journalists, and artists alike had sought him out. Hurston's colleague Arthur Huff Fawcett had already collected from Kozula the folktale Tappan, Terrapin, which he published in Alan Locke's 1925 The New Negro, an interpretation. Speculations aside, Boyd states, Making some use of material from another writer is completely common and acceptable. But as Zora knew, copying another's work and passing it off as one's own is not. It is possible that the compromised article may have both relieved Hurston of tedium and allowed her a boon of lore for her own purposes, thereby hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick. Or, as Linda Marion Hill suggests in Social Rituals and the Verbal Art of Zora Neale Hurston, Hurston's professional faux pas may have been an instance of Hurston masking her emotional response to a troubling event. In 1927, 
Zora Neale Hurston was new. Although Hemingway may have agreed with Franz Boas that Hurston was a little too impressed with her own accomplishments, it is equally true that she herself was still very much impressionable. In 1927, the career to which critics allude was in the future. Hurston was not the seasoned social scientist who had published the folklore collections Mules and Men, 1935, and Tell My Horse, 1938. She was not the author of four novels, including the celebrated Their Eyes Were Watching God, 1937. She was yet at the beginning of things. Kudjo's own story was Hurston's debut scholarly publication. In writing her first essay on Kudjo, Linda Hill surmises... Hurston might have been too moved and too uncertain how to manage her subjective response, rather than too frustrated with the rigors of scientific analysis to produce an authentic text. As Hurston reflected on her interview with Kasula years later in her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, it gave me something to feel about. The interview changed, Hurston, Hill observes. This elder an Isha Yoruba in America, had schooled her in the socio-political and cultural complexities of my people. In face of Kusula's recollections, the social constructions of my people and Africans were deconstructed by the reality of ethnic identifications, which not only distinguished tribes and clans, but also generated the narrative distance and the ideological difference that rendered one ethnic group capable of regarding another as stranger or enemy and allowed that group to offer up the other to the transatlantic trade. One thing impressed me strongly from this three months of association with Kojo Lewis, Hurston writes, The white people had held my people in slavery in America. They had bought us, it is true, and exploited us, but the inescapable fact that stuck in my craw was, my people had sold me, and the white people had bought me. That did away with the folklore I had been brought up on. That the white people had gone to Africa, waved a red handkerchief at the Africans, and lured them aboard ship, and sailed away. Hurston was a collector of folklore. However, the folklore she was brought up on contradicted the folklore she was collecting from Kosula. Moreover, all that this Kajo told me, Hurston mused, was verified from other historical sources. Harlem Renaissance pundits and artists like Zora Neale Hurston were wrestling with the identity of the Negro. They had reclaimed the image of black people, and asserted the value of black culture vis-a-vis -vis white people and Anglo-American culture. There was a decided movement to do away with the image of the old Negro and usher in the new Negro, whose authentic culture and ethos were rooted in African origins. How did the butchering and killing of African others and the extirpation of whole societies fit within the profile of this modern, authentic New Negro. Might Hurston have attempted to avoid the inescapable fact of that dimension of African humanity that was motivated by the universal nature of greed and glory? Could it be 
that the woman and social scientist whose objectives entailed the discovering and uncovering of African cultural retentions in America was blindsided by Kusula's recollection of the inhumanity that was integral to his delivery at the port of Widda. Perhaps, rather than force herself to deal with such disorienting facts that stuck in her craw, Hurston chose in that moment to submit a narrative about the raid that had already been penned. Although justifying plagiarism is impossible, Hill writes, the reasons for it should be scrutinized in light of its being, to date, a one-time occurrence in the long, productive career of a prolific and widely published author. Hill's perspective is an important one, especially given the fact that Hemingway levels a similar charge, condemning and dismissing Barracoon, as though the manuscript were but an extension of the earlier published Cudjo Lewis piece. It is not. Hemingway proclaims that the article published in the journal was an anomaly, and reports that Hurston returned to Mobile to interview Kusula anew, and did so with greater success. Barracoon, the book-length work, was the result of her efforts. Yet, even this unpublished manuscript, written in 1931, writes Hemingway, makes extensive use of Roche and other anthropological sources, although it skillfully weaves together the scholarship and Hurston's own memories of Cudjo, it does not acknowledge those sources, and it is the type of book that Boaz would have repudiated. Hemingway writes further, The book purports to be solely the words of Cudjo. In fact, it is Hurston's imaginative recreation of his experience. Her purpose was to recreate slavery from a black perspective, but she was doing so as an artist rather than as a folklorist. Although the journal article and the book manuscript have a common subject in Kosula, they are two distinct works. And where the charge of plagiarism is reasonable with the first, it is unfounded with the second. Hurston does draw on Roche's work in Barracoon, and she acknowledges it only indirectly. In her preface to Barracoon, she writes, For historical data, I am indebted to the Journal of Negro History and to the records of the Mobile Historical Society. In her introduction, Hurston describes her interviews with Kusula and states, Thus, from Kudjo and from the records of the Mobile Historical Society, I had the story of the last load of slaves brought into the United States. In her use of Roche's work, as with her use of other secondary materials, Hurston makes a good-faith effort in Barracoon to document her sources. She does paraphrase passages from historical sketches, and she places direct quotes within quotation marks, though in the manuscript draft she is inconsistent in this and some sources are actually documented within the text of the introduction, and others are footnoted within the body of the narrative. The historian Sylvian Diouf states that Hemingway's characterization of Hurston's manuscript was uncalled for. She may have conflated some of what Cudjo said with some of what she knew as a scholar, but she made a genuine effort at separating the two. With few exceptions, the information provided in Barracoon is confirmed by other sources. Witnesses, 
experts in Yoruba cultures, contemporary newspaper articles, and abundant archival material corroborate the various events in Kajo's life as described in Barracoon. Far from being a fictionalized recreation, Diouf writes, Kajo's story, as transmitted by Hurston, is as close to veracity as can possibly be ascertained with the help of other records. She states further that Hurston had produced an invaluable document on the lives of a group of people with a unique experience in American history. Rather than repudiate her, Boas might well have been pleased and encouraging, as Hurston, in this early phase of her professional writing, endeavored to utilize historical records to support her folklore findings, just as both Boas and Woodson had instructed. What is more significant is that Hurston was struggling to appease neither Boas nor Woodson, but was engaged in the process of actualizing her vision of herself as a social scientist and an artist who was determined to present Kosula's story in as authentic a manner as possible. Kosula, Hurston, Charlotte Mason, and Barracoon In September 1927, Hurston had met and come under contract with Charlotte Osgood Mason, a patron to several Harlem Renaissance luminaries. Mason funded Hurston's return to Alabama for the extended interviews with Kosula, and she supported Hurston's research efforts while preparing Barracoon for publication. In a March 25, 1931 letter to Mason, Hurston writes that the work is coming along well. She reported that she had to revise some passages, but that she was within a few paragraphs of the end of the whole thing, then for the final typing. She described the revisions and related her new research findings. I found at the library an actual account of the raid, as Kusula said that it happened. Also the tribe name. It was not on the maps because the entire tribe was wiped out by the Dahomey troops. The king who conquered them preserved carefully the skull of Kusula's king as a most worthy foe. Hurston and Mason conversed about the potential publication of Barracoon over a period of years. In her desire to see Hurston financially independent, Mason encouraged Hurston to prepare Barracoon, as well as the material that would become Mules and Men, for publication. Charlotte Mason considered herself not only a patron to black writers and artists, but also a guardian of black folklore. She believed it her duty to protect it from those whites who, having no more interesting things to investigate among themselves, were grabbing in every direction material that by right belongs entirely to another race. Following the suggestions of Mason and Alan Locke, Hurston advised Kosula and his family to avoid talking with other folklore collectors, white ones, no doubt, who he and Godmother felt should be kept entirely away, not only from the project in hand, but from this entire movement for the rediscovery of our folk material. Mason's support of Hurston's efforts with Barracoon extended to monetary contributions to Kusula's welfare. Mason and Kusula would eventually communicate directly with each other, and Kusula would come to consider Mason a dear friend. As one letter suggests, Kosula was struggling financially, 
It had come to Mason's attention that Kosula had used excerpts from his copy of Hurston's narrative to gain financial compensation from local newspapers. Kosula dictated a letter to Mason in response to her concern. Dear friend, you may have seen in the papers about my history, but this has been over three years since I has let anyone take it off to copy from it. I only did that so they would help me. But there is no one did for me as you has. The Lord will bless you and will give you a long life. Where there is no more parting, yours in Christ, Cudjo Lewis. As Mason was protective of Hurston's professional interests, both women remained concerned about Kosula's welfare. Having discovered that Kosula was not receiving money that Mason had mailed to him, Hurston looked into the matter. She updated Mason accordingly. I have written to Claudia Thornton to check up on Kosula and all about things. I have also asked the post office at Plateau to check any letters coming to Kajo Lewis from New York. As Hurston checked on Kosula, she continued revising the manuscript. Second writing of Kosula all done and about typed. She wrote Mason on January 12, 1931. On April 18th, she was enthusiastic. At last, Barracoon is ready for your eyes. Appreciative of Mason's support, Hurston dedicated the book to her and began submitting it to publishers. In September 1931, she contemplated Viking's proposal. The Viking press again asks for the life of Kosula, but in language rather than dialect. It lies here, and I know your mind about that, and so I do not answer them except with your tongue. The dialect was a vital and authenticating feature of the narrative. Hurston would not submit to such revision. Perhaps, as Langston Hughes wrote in The Big Sea, the Negro was no longer in vogue, and publishers like Bonnie and Viking were unwilling to take risks on Negro material during the Great Depression. The Griot there seems to be a note of disappointment in Diouf's revelation that Hurston submitted Barracoon to various publishers, but it never found a taker and has still not been published. Hurston's manuscript is an invaluable historical document, as Diouf points out, and an extraordinary literary achievement as well, despite the fact that it found no takers during her lifetime. In it, Zora Neale Hurston found a way to produce a written text that maintains the orality of the spoken word, and she did so without imposing herself in the narrative, creating what some scholars classify as orature. Contrary to Hemingway's dismissal of Barracoon as Hurston's recreation of Kosula's experience, Hill writes that, through a deliberate act of suppression, she resists presenting her own point of view in a natural or naturalistic way and allows Kosula to tell his story in his own way. Zora Neale Hurston was not only committed to collecting artifacts of African-American folk culture, she was also adamant about their authentic presentation. Even as she rejected the objective observer stance of Western scientific inquiry, for a participant-observer stance, 
Hurston still incorporated standard features of the ethnographic and folklore collecting processes within her methodology. Adopting the participant-observer stance is what allowed her to collect folklore like a new broom. As Hill points out, Hurston was simultaneously working and learning, which meant ultimately that she was not just mirroring her mentors, but that she was coming into her own. Embedded in the narrative of Barracoon are those aspects of ethnography and folklore collecting that reveal Hurston's methodology and authenticate Kosula's story as his own, rather than as a fiction of Hurston's imagination. The story, in the main, is told from Kosula's first-person point of view. Hurston transcribes Kosula's story using his vernacular diction, spelling his words as she hears them pronounced. Sentences follow his syntactical rhythms and maintain his idiomatic expressions and repetitive phrases. Hurston's methods respect Kosula's own storytelling sensibility. It is one that is rooted in African soil. It would be hard to make the case that she entirely invented Kosula's language and, consequently, his emerging persona, comments Hill, and it would be an equally hard case to make that she created the life events chronicled in Kosula's story. Even as Hurston has her own idea about how a story is to be told, Kosula has his. Hurston is initially impatient with Kozula's talk about his father and grandfather, for instance, but Kozula's proverbial wisdom adjusts her attitude. Where is the house where the mouse is the leader? Hurston complained in dust tracks on a road of Kozula's reticence, yet her patience in getting his story is quite apparent in the narrative. She is persistent in her returning to his home even when Kozula petulantly sends her away. He doesn't always talk when she comes, but rather chooses to tend his garden or repair his fence. And sometimes her time with him is spent driving Kozula into town. Sometimes he is lost in his memories. Recording such moments within the body of the narrative not only structures the overall narrative flow of events, but reveals the behavioral patterns of her informant. As Hurston is not just an observer, she fully participates in the process of helping Kosula to tell his story. In writing his story, says Hill, Hurston does not romanticize or in any way imply that ideals such as self-fulfillment or fully realized self-expression could emerge from such suffering as Kosula has known. Hurston does not intercept his comments, except when she builds a transition from one interview to the next, in her footnotes, and at the end when she summarizes. The story Hurston gathers is presented in such a way that she, the interlocutor, all but disappears. The narrative space she creates for Kozula's unburdening is sacred. Rather than insert herself into the narrative as the learned and probing cultural anthropologist, the investigating ethnographer, or the authorial writer, Zora Neale Hurston, in her still listening, assumes the office of a priest. In this space, Oluwale Kozula passes his story of epic proportion on to her.
Barracoon. To Charlotte Mason, my godmother, and the one mother of all the primitives, who with the gods in space is concerned about the hearts of the untaught. Preface This is the life story of Kajo Lewis, as told by himself. It makes no attempt to be a scientific document, but on the whole he is rather accurate. If he is a little hazy as to detail after sixty-seven years, he is certainly to be pardoned. The quotations from the works of travelers in Dahomey are set down, not to make this appear a thoroughly documented biography, but to emphasize his remarkable memory. Three spellings of his nation are found, A-T-T-A-K-O, T-A-C-C-O-U, and T-A-C-C-O-W. But Lewis's pronunciation is probably correct. Therefore, I have used T-A-K-K-O-I throughout the work. I was sent by a woman of tremendous understanding of primitive peoples to get this story. The thought back of the act was to set down essential truth rather than fact of detail, which is so often misleading. Therefore, he has been permitted to tell his story in his own way, without the intrusion of interpretation. For historical data, I am indebted to the Journal of Negro History and to the records of the Mobile Historical Society. Zora Neale Hurston, April 17, 1931 Introduction the African slave trade is the most dramatic chapter in the story of human existence. Therefore, a great literature has grown up about it. Innumerable books and papers have been written. These are supplemented by the vast lore that has been blown by the breath of inarticulate ones across the seas and lands of the world. Those who justified slaving on various grounds have had their say. Among these are several slave-runners who have boasted of their exploits in the contraband flesh. Those who stood aloof in loathing have cried out against it in lengthy volumes. All the talk, printed and spoken, has had to do with ships and rations, with sail and weather, with ruses and piracy and balls between wind and water, with native kings and bargains sharp and sinful on both sides, with tribal wars and slave factories and red massacres and all the machinations necessary to stock a barracoon with African youth on the first leg of their journey from humanity to cattle, with storing and feeding and starvation and suffocation and pestilence and death, with slave ships' stenches and mutinies of crew and cargo, with the jettying of cargoes before the guns of British cruisers, with auction blocks and sales and profits and losses. All these words from the seller, but not one word from the sold. The kings and captains whose words moved ships, but not one word from the cargo. The thoughts of the black ivory, the coin of Africa, had no market value. Africa's ambassadors to the New World have come and worked and died and left their spore, but no recorded thought. Of all the millions transported from Africa to the Americas, only one man is left. He is called Kajo Lewis and is living at present 
at Plateau, Alabama, a suburb of Mobile. This is the story of this Cudjo. I had met Cudjo Lewis for the first time in July 1927. I was sent by Dr. Franz Boas to get a first-hand report of the raid that had brought him to America and bondage for Dr. Carter G. Woodson of the Journal of Negro History. I had talked with him in December of that same year and again in 1928. Thus, from Cudjo and from the records of the Mobile Historical Society, I had the story of the last load of slaves brought into the United States. The four men responsible for this last deal in human flesh, before the surrender of Lee at Appomattox should end the 364 years of Western slave trading, were the three Mayer brothers and one captain, William Bill Foster. Jim, Tim, and Burns Mayer were natives of Maine. They had a mill and shipyard on the Alabama River at the mouth of Chickasabogue Creek, now called Three Mile Creek, where they built swift vessels for blockade running, filibustering expeditions, and river trade. Captain Foster was associated with the mayors in business. He was born in Nova Scotia of English parents. There are various reasons given for this trip to the African coast in 1859, with the muttering thunder of secession heard from one end of the United States to the other. Some say that it was done as a prank to win a bet. That is doubtful. Perhaps they believed with many others that the abolitionists would never achieve their ends. Perhaps they merely thought of the probable profits of the voyage and so undertook it. The Clotilda was the fastest boat in their possession, and she was the one selected to make the trip. Captain Foster seems to have been the actual owner of the vessel. Perhaps that is the reason he sailed in command. The clearance papers state that she was sailing for the West Coast for a cargo of red palm oil. Foster had a crew of Yankee sailors and sailed directly for Ouida, the slave port of Dahomey. The Clotilda slipped away from Mobile as secretly as possible so as not to arouse the curiosity of the government. It had a good voyage to within a short distance of the Cape Verde Islands. Then a hurricane struck, and Captain Foster had to put in there for repairs. While he was on dry dock, his crew mutinied. They demanded more pay under the threat of informing a British man of war that was at hand. Foster hurriedly promised the increase the sailors demanded, but his wife often told how he laughingly broke this promise when it was safe to do so. After the repairs had been made, he made presents to the Portuguese officials of shawls and other trinkets and sailed away unmolested. Soon he was safely anchored in the Gulf of Guinea before Widda. There being no harbor, ships must stand in open roadstead, and the communications with shore are carried on by crewmen in their surf boats. Soon Captain Foster and his kegs of specie and trading goods were landed. Six stalwart blacks were delegated to meet him and conduct him into the presence of a prince of Dahomey, but he did not meet the king. Foster was born in a hammock to the prince, who received him seated on his stool of rank. He was gracious and hospitable, and had Foster shown the sights of Widda. He was surrounded by evidence of great wealth, and Foster was impressed. He was particularly struck by a large square enclosure filled with thousands of snakes, which he was told had been collected for ceremonial purposes. 
The prince expressed regret that Foster had arrived a little too late to witness the Dahomey custom in honor of trade, foreign, i.e., mostly slave trade. Nevertheless, he found Foster's company so pleasant that he wished to make him a present. He therefore desired Foster to look about him and select a person, one that the superior wisdom and exalted taste of Foster designated the finest specimen. Foster looked about him and chose a young man named Gumpa. Foster, making this selection with the intention of flattering the prince to whom Gumpa was nearly related. This accounts for the one to Homan in the cargo. The ceremonies over, Foster had little trouble in procuring a cargo. The barracoons at Widow were overflowing. It had long been a part of the trader's policy to instigate the tribes against each other, so that plenty of prisoners would be taken, and, in this manner, keep the market stocked. News of the trade was often published in the papers. An excerpt from the Mobile Register of November 9, 1858, said, From the west coast of Africa, we have advice dated September 21st. The quarreling of the tribes on Sierra Leone River rendered the aspect of things very unsatisfactory. Inciting was no longer necessary in Dahomey. The king of Dahomey had long ago concentrated all his resources on the providing of slaves for the foreign market. There was a brisk trade in slaves at from fifty to sixty dollars apiece at Widda. Immense numbers of Negroes were collected along the coast for export. King Gezo maintained a standing army of about twelve thousand, and of these, five thousand are Amazons. The Dahomean year was divided into two parts, the wars and the festivals. In the months of November or December, the king commences his annual wars, and these wars were kept up until January or February. These were never carried on for mere conquest. They were all forced upon the Dahomeans from less powerful nations. The king boasted that he never attacked a people unless they had not only insulted Dahomey, but his own people must ask him for a war against the aggressors for three successive years. Then, and then only, would he let himself be persuaded to march forth and exterminate the insulting tribe. But there were so many insulting chiefs and kings that it kept the warriors of Dahomey, reluctant as they were, always upon the warpath. Whole nations are transported, exterminated, their name to be forgotten, except in the annual festival of their conquerors, when sycophants call the names of the vanquished countries to the remembrance of the victors. When the Dahomean king marched forth against a place, he concealed from his army the name or the place against which he has brought them, until within a day's march of the goal. Daylight is generally the time of onset, and every cunning, secrecy, and ingenuity is exercised to take the enemy by surprise. With or without resistance, all the aged were decapitated on the spot, and the youth driven to the barracoons at Widow. On the return from war in January, the king resides at Cana and makes a fetish. That is, he sacrifices largely and gives liberal presents to the people, and, at the same time, purchases the prisoners and heads from his soldiers of those slain in war.
the heads are always cut off and carried home. No warrior may boast of more enemies slain than he has heads to show for. The slaves are then sold to the slave merchants, and their blood money wasted in the ensuing custom Hue no o Iwa, as the great annual feast is entitled in Dahomean parlance. The most important feast is held in March and called Sikeahi, at which the king sacrifices many slaves and makes a great display of his wealth. There is a lesser festival in May or June, in honor of trade, which is celebrated with music, dancing, and singing. In July is celebrated the royal salute to the fetish of the great waters. Therefore, when Captain Foster arrived in May, the wars being just over for the year, he had a large collection to choose from. The people he chose had been in the stockade behind the great white house for less than a month. He selected 130, equal number of men and women, paid for them, got into his hammock, and was conveyed across the shallow river to the beach, and was shot through the surf by the skillful crew boys and joined his ship. In other boats manipulated by the crew boys were his pieces of property. When 116 of the slaves had been brought aboard, Foster, up in the rigging, observing all the activities of the port through his glasses, became alarmed. He saw all the Dahomean ships suddenly run up black flags. He hurried down and gave orders to abandon the cargo not already on board and to sail away with all speed. He says that the Dahomeans were treacherously planning to recapture the cargo he had just bought and hold him for ransom. But the Clotilda was so expertly handled, and her speed was so great, that she sped away to safety with all ease. The next day he was chased by an English cruiser, but escaped by pressing on sail. Nothing eventful happened until the thirteenth day, when he ordered the cargo brought on deck so that they might regain the use of their limbs. Though the space in the Clotilda greatly exceeded the usual space in most slavers, the blacks were cramped. The usual space in which the middle passage was made was from two and a half to three feet in height. It was about five feet in the Clotilda. However, the lack of action had numbed them. On the twentieth day, Foster thought he saw a British cruiser on the horizon intercepting his course. He climbed to the mast with his glasses. Yes, there she was, sweeping on toward his course. He hurried down and gave orders for the slaves to be returned to the hold. Then he anchored and lay until night, when he resumed his course. When Captain Foster reached American waters, the slaves were put back in the hold. The ship lay hidden for three days, behind the islands in Mississippi Sound and near the lower end of Mobile Bay. To make the hiding more secure, the Clotilda was dismasted. Then Foster got into a small boat, rowed by four sailors, to go to the western shore of Mobile Bay, intending to send word to Mayor that the Clotilde had arrived. His approach was regarded with suspicion by some men ashore, and he was fired upon. Waving a white handkerchief, their doubts were allayed, and he offered fifty dollars for a conveyance which would take him to Mobile. Captain Foster reached Mobile on a Sunday morning in August 1859, his return from the slave coast having been made in seventy days. Arrangements had long been made that a tug should lie in readiness to go at a moment's notice down Mobile Bay to tow the Clotilde and her cargo to safety. 
When the news came, the tug's pilot was attending services at St. John's Church. Captain Jim Mayer and James Dennison, a Negro slave, hurried to the church and called the pilot out. The three hastened down to the wharf and were soon aboard the tug. It proceeded down the bay, but waited till dark to approach the Clotilda. Finally, the tug was made fast to the Clotilda, and the trip up the bay was begun. The last slave ship was at the end of its voyage. The tug avoided the Mobile River Channel, slipped behind the lighthouse on Battery Gladden into Spanish River. As the Clotilda passed opposite Mobile, the clock in the old Spanish tower struck eleven, and the watchman's voice floated over the city and across the marshes. Eleven o'clock, and all's well. The Clotilda was taken directly to Twelve Mile Island, a lonely, weird place by night. There, Captain Foster and the mayors awaited the R.B. Taney, named for Chief Justice Taney, of the Dred Scott decision fame. Some say it was the June instead of the Taney. Lights were smoothed, and in the darkness, quickly and quietly, the captives were transferred from the Clotilda to the steamboat and taken up the Alabama River to John Dabney's plantation below Mount Vernon. They were landed the next day, and left in charge of the slave James Dennison. At Twelve Mile Island, the crew of northern sailors again mutinied. Captain Foster, with a six-shooter in each hand, went among them, discharged them, and ordered them to hit the grit and never be seen in southern waters again. They were placed aboard the tug and carried to Mobile. One of the mayors bought them tickets and saw that they boarded a train for the north, the Clotilda was scuttled and fired. Captain Foster himself placed seven cords of light wood upon her. Her hull still lies in the marsh at the mouth of Bayou Corn and can be seen at low tide. Foster afterwards regretted her destruction as she was worth more than the ten Africans given him by the mayors as his booty. The Africans were kept at Dabney's place for eleven days, being only allowed to talk in whispers, and being constantly moved from place to place. At the end of the eleventh day, clothes were brought to them, and they were put aboard the steamer Commodore and carried to the bend in Clark County, where the Alabama and the Tombigbee Rivers meet, and where Burns' mayor had a plantation. There they were lodged each night under a wagon shed, and driven each morning before daybreak back into the swamp, where they remained until dark. Mayer sent words secretly to those disposed to buy. They were piloted to the place of concealment by Denison. The Africans were placed in two long rows, men in one row, women in the other. Some couples were bought and taken to Selma. The remainder were divided up among the mayors and Foster. Captain Jim Mayer took thirty-two, sixteen couples. Captain Burns Mayer took ten Africans. Foster received ten, and Captain Tim Mayer took eight. Finally, after a period of adjustment, the slaves were put to work. Before a year had passed, the War of Secession broke out. With the danger from interference from the federal government removed, all the Africans not sold to Selma were brought to the mayor plantations at Magazine Point. Nevertheless, the mayors were tried in the federal courts, 1860-61, to 61, and fined heavily for bringing in the Africans. 
The village that these Africans built after freedom came, they called African Town. The town is now called Plateau, Alabama. The new name was bestowed upon it by the Mobile and Birmingham Railroad, now a part of the Southern Railroad system built through the town. But still, its dominant tone is African. With these things already known to me, I once more sought the ancient house of the man called Kajo. This singular man, who says of himself, Edem etie ukum edem etie upar. The tree of two woods, literally two trees that have grown together. One part ukum, mahogany, and one part upar, ebony. He means to say, partly a free man, partly free. The only man on earth who has in his heart the memory of his African home, the horrors of a slave raid, the barracoon, the Lenten tones of slavery, and who has 67 years of freedom in a foreign land behind him. How does one sleep with such memories beneath the pillow? How does a pagan live with a Christian god? How has the Nigerian heathen borne up under the process of civilization? I was sent to ask. Context of white supremacy, that is the end. This is the first time I can recall we've read a book where we had two introductions. So we have finished our second introduction, and when we get to the second audio clip, we will actually start on chapter one of Barakun. But that was a lot of background information to get before we actually get to the text. Very interesting. I took notes. We will see what other folks have to say as well. The number to dial if you have commentary, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. You can use the free VOPE line if you are not interested in using your phone to dial in. It should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, look on the left of the page. You will see a link. It says free VOPE line. Click that link. When you open or when you click the link, it will open a new window on your screen. The top line is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. Next line, it will ask for a code. That code again, 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a real name, nickname. You can press random keys. 
whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast and you will be able to participate. Same procedure uh, that I gave out before. You'll see a dial pad on your screen. Press star six one. I will see your hand and we will add you to the line. With that, uh, if folks have any thoughts, this is a little interesting because technically we have not really got into what Barakun is all about, but we have got a lot of background information on how this book came together, why it languished for 60 years uh, after it was finished, why it took so long to get the book uh, published to begin with. All of that information I thought was very important. I posted a report from the Washington Post, which talked about how copyright laws uh, can be invoked to quiet many a black writer uh, over the years. Uh, it's definitely constructive because most of that article is focused on this book uh, and how copyright laws were a part of why this book was not published for so many years. Uh, one question that I'll ask really quick before we get to the listeners. I know we have some listeners uh, who take the perspective that whites one aspect of how they practice racism, white supremacy, is by playing up the enslavement of black people and or deliberately obscuring uh, that black people, people with a lot of melanin, were here prior to slavery and that some of these folks may not have been stolen at all. Uh, and that works like 12 years a slave. And this might be a part of the effort uh, to further that racist agenda. Uh, if folks have thoughts uh, as to that. And since when they were explaining about how Cujo Lewis, how he ended up being in North America as a slave, they were saying that it was brawls between tribes, as they say, on the continent uh, that produced a lot of the cargo, these full barracoons. What do folks have to say about the Negro involvement or other black people uh, enslaving, quarreling with one another and contributing to this. I think we had a pretty sizable con uh, conversation on workplace racism yesterday about saying, hey, I don't think that these people are victims. They should be held accountable. Uh, does are, are people thinking the same thing, given what we heard in the first section of the audio? We'll get to folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have thoughts on those questions or anything. Any other thoughts came up during the first portion of the reading. Feel free. And I can again only remind folks this is going to be a hit it and quit it. Uh, we will be done next week. Like I had to double check at the audio and the page count to see if I'm making up things or what have you. But it is true. This and ta Coats, they will be the two shortest books we've ever done on the book club. So you should really, really invest a lot of your mental energy these two weeks because we will be moving on quickly. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Abby Heard. Greetings, Red in Nevada. Hello, thank you for taking my call and hello to everyone. Um, I guess I only have just a few notes about the first audio segment. I didn't realize how short the book was, so um, I didn't get it yet. But I thought it was interesting just the, the real detail about the Dahomey uh, warriors who 
were sent to or the whole the the whole Dahomey tribe um, and how they were uh, used by the white supremacists. And that's something that I did have to keep reminding myself um, during the audio segment that, you know, not to just my immediate thought, just like um, Augustus said, you know, these people aren't victims, but then also just thinking about, well, it was the warriors who were told by the king, who was also a confused victim, who was confused by just the little Negro trinkets that he would get for selling off people that um, he he made up some reason to not like. This kind of also made me think about how, like, even nowadays with whites using Africans to kill elephants for, like, the ivory and just keep reminding myself, you know, these are, it, they're doing it because white people. Um, but I, I definitely thought that that was, I, I never knew how graphic or, you know, how um, really violent it could have been as far as them, you know, slaughtering a whole, the Dahomey slaughtering a whole um, tribe, basically, and then selling selling off the survivors into slavery. Uh, and also, um, the other thing, just with the language of um, Kojo, I think, um, that's the, 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 the man, the black male's name, um, or his, his new name, basically the, I know that was one of the things that I, I know I, at least I didn't like about, um, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, just the whole quote unquote authenticity. And I know this is, uh, the book was, or the information was gathered by a fellow victim, but also just wondering like, why does that have to be, um, one of the, uh, the rules or whatever, or the things to follow about authenticity when it comes to black people. If we've been severely retarded by the system and people know this, then why kind of play up on that, um, that retardation? Uh, the other thing, the, um, just you can't, the uh, real detail about plagiarism, which I also thought was interesting, just, you know, speaking up so much about like the, the proposed or possible plagiarism that, um, Ms. Hurston possibly did, which seems kind of, I've never heard of it, like kind of out of character for it, that to be in a book that um, she basically put together. And I know of white writers who have plagiarized and admitted to pla uh, plagiarizing things. And it's not something that is literally attached within the book. So I thought that that was, was interesting as well. Um, I, um, I guess that's all I have for now. Uh, thank you for allowing me to share. Quick interesting point. The commentary about the plagiarism is not included, at least it not in the ebook version that I have. And that did cause a little bit of confusion for me. I was kind of going back and forth to see if I missed something or if it was placed differently. But that portion is not included in the introduction that I have, the ebook version. Other people who dialed in uh, with commentary, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and the uh, listeners. Uh, interesting book. Uh, just on a personal note, uh, in our family, we can trace back our great-great-grandmother uh, back to Africa. Uh, she was an Igbo who was captured into slavery, so... This book had a little bit of personal, uh, you know, personal interest for me to see how, because we don't have any record records of what how she lived in Africa. So this is kind of like somewhat of a insight of what was going on. But 
in regards to the book, uh, I don't think the recording uh, 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 did Alice's Walker's forward because Alice Walker has a forward uh, in the beginning of the book. And uh, to uh, to touch on your question about uh, how do we feel about the Africans uh, enslaving uh, their own people, and I was reading Alice Walker's forward, and she basically focused on that, you know, about how uh, you know, the Africans, uh, enslaving, you know, uh, other Africans and selling them off to, uh, to, uh, to the white people. But, you know, there was no mention of who was the cause of the transatlantic slave trade. And that was white people. Uh, she, uh, you know, Alice Walker, victim of uh, white supremacy, but, you know, she basically kind of parroted a lot of what white people say about, you know, Africans selling Africans, because even, even with uh, uh, even with uh, Kojo, uh, he even says that you know although the Africans uh, sold me, you know the white people bought me. So he is at least implying you know white complicity in this whole thing. But you know, like you said, uh, the Africans victims of white supremacy as well. So uh, that was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, the Dahomey, uh, the Dahomey female warriors that captured. Uh, the subject uh, while he was in his home of, of Africa. You know, what's interesting is uh, in Black Panther, one of the more prominent characters are the female warriors uh, in that movie who were kind of modeled after the Dahomey the, the female warriors. So I often wonder, you know, when I was reading this, I wondered how popular, how would black people feel if, they knew that they were part of uh, enslaving, you know, their own African people. Would, you know, would Black Panther be as popular, you know, if they knew that piece of history? Because, I mean, before reading this book, I didn't know that myself. So uh, I, uh, I've, I've thought about that. Uh, and uh, I had some more notes. Oh, actually, these are notes for the next... Uh, for the next recording, but I'll save that. So uh, that's all for now. I'll meet my life. Bravo. More to come. Uh, other folks, multiple connections to Marvel's Black Panther in this here text. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Uh, can you hear me? Greetings, Jay in St. Louis. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, thanks uh, for doing this again. Uh, I want to say that right off the bat, I think uh, the last couple of callers brought up some great points. And um, I just want to make a point about methodology here, the whole the thing about plagiarism. Um, I don't know, being about academia, it happens. I don't think it's something that really should have been brought up and defended. It seems as though they had to kind of explain it, why she would have allegedly uh, plagiarize someone's work. None of us are beyond reproach or perfect in any regard. And I mean, it happens today. And I have a lot of respect for Zora Neale Hurston as a female scholar, especially during this time. Uh, and so it's a real possibility that the, whatever uh, piece of scholarship was published first could have been stolen from her. Uh, and actually it happens all the time. 
uh, people will steal ideas if you trust someone and communicate it to them. They, if they have the means, they can publish it before you even put it down. So uh, a woman in that kind of terrain, I, I don't hold anything against her, even if she did, uh, especially if she stole it from a white person, just in, in my own uh, ethical apparatus here. Um, and then uh, I wanted to say that uh, her subject uh, I, I actually watched a review of this book and I, there were numerous comments made about her ability to capture the persona of, of her subject. Uh, I can't remember his name um, right off the bat, but Kajo or Kojo, um, you know, her ability to capture him, I think is a testament to her scholarship, her ability, her anthropological ability. And I'm excited to hear it. And I think he's a, a a special subject because he kind of lives within these three epochs of African history. And uh, to your question lastly about African selling Africans, I think that whole uh, situation is often in, introduced to people uh, out of context. Uh, and I heard the year 1890, and if we're talking late uh, 19th century, you know, none of that can be really articulated without also talking about the entire siege that white people through uh, systems of state government, no, uh, specifically Great Britain and America, uh, even the University of Princeton was central to this campaign of an entire attack on, on West Africa for, um, with, uh, I can't even remember, palm oil specifically, yeah, palm oil. So, you know, during this time, this was the, the rape of Africa. This was the height of the rape of the continent. So. You know, I'm sure it has something to do with that. And there are all these kind of dynamics within the system of white supremacy where um, non-whites will harm non-whites, um, and it ultimately helps them. So that's all I'll say. Thanks. Much obliged, J.N. St. Louis. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Proceed. Did we nab all the folks uh, who have a hand up? Or I know might be some folks who are not. Greetings, can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Yes, uh, I kind of like, uh, I keep forgetting that uh, you uh, have an hour early, <laughs> hour early. And uh, plus I was involved with some other things. But uh, uh, one thing I gathered that, uh, and correct if I'm wrong, that uh, the, uh, the writer uh, was describing the uh, the slave trade without entering entering in all of the details about what exactly how it took place and what happened. Mm, I would not exactly say that, uh, even though we haven't really okay. gotten to all of the details of the main subject uh, of the book, I would not exactly say that's right. the impression that I got from the text. Uh, I think she includes, oh, okay. I think uh, some of the listeners were just talking about uh, the missing context in terms of whites being culpable uh, for all of this. I think that was the main point that some of the listeners uh, were getting at in terms of uh, what was left out, that whites were ultimately culpable to be specific. Is that what you were re referring to? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's what I was referring to because I, I wasn't just going. I wasn't even just going by the uh, 
the uh, uh, the listeners uh, report uh, based on the little bit I did here. I was waiting for the the uh, narrator to explain. Okay, what where was the part that was in that had white people has white people as being culpable and ultimately in power of the uh, of the business itself, and uh, I didn't hear it. I just thought to, I was just you know thinking to myself as I was listening to uh, the the readings, and uh, but I wasn't sure because you know I came came in on some like maybe midway or the last three quarters of the first read, but uh, yeah, that, that's exactly what I was uh, thinking. It's is uh, it's that uh, I can I can recall Mr. Fuller uh, uh, kind of like paraphrasing. The, the whole uh, historical uh, uh, instance and by asking the question, which one is the, the more in control, the seller or the buyer? <laughs> and uh, he uh, made the, uh, the scientific uh, determination that the buyer is the person who is of the side that is the most in control. You know, and... Uh, that's what thought came to my mind uh, behind uh, that part, that little small part of, of the reading. But uh, I'm now uh, kind of like attempting to try to tune into it while I'm uh, heading towards the house. But uh, I'll keep following it. Thank you. Much obliged. Retired firefighter. Appreciate that. Folks can check out the clip uh, he was referring to where Mr. Fuller uh, talks about uh, whom is most to blame, seller buyer if we're talking about selling people system of white supremacy uh other folks that we've missed completely haven't shared that have a hand up yes sir yes sir okay greetings gus uh greetings to the other callers and listeners um what stood out to me at first was the suspected racist uh hemingway um, and Charlotte Mason, I guess these were, um, imported, uh, whites in either hindering, hindering the, uh, development of this work or either contributed to it. Uh, Charlotte Mason contributed, I guess she was religious and, and educated at the time and was financing, um, Miss Hurston, um, but you can see the racism and this uh, attitude, uh, racist attitude, even in the uh, creation of this work. She, uh, a brilliant uh, lady, is trying to document something that would be uh, invaluable. And then you have to go through uh, over, what, a century before the book can get published. You know, it just goes to show the uh, the racist attitude. And then uh, the opening of the book, you know, like some of the other callers, you know, pointed out, you know, the whole system of African uh, culture was different. So uh, the wars between the different tribes created by European whites, because by this time, hundreds of years have gone by with uh, the slave trade. And so they know exactly how to go in and create this strike. And then 
enrich the ruling class, you know, to sell on those imprisoned uh, people that they uh, gathered from those different wars and then make a profit from that. So, um, and like someone pointed out, there was some black people in the Americas even before all of this. But see, hundreds of years had passed, and you know, we want to start with this guy's story. So, if you got a subject that were, was actually on the ship and brought to the Americas as a slave, then this would be very valuable, and it should be something that uh, would be of interest, you know, for everyone. But like I say, that racist uh, uh, component is always there. And then the time frame um, of what, within 60 years after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, you still, you know, got this, uh, this, uh, you know, intense racist, uh, environment going on so it's very difficult to get down to the truth but i'll be interested to find out what happens later and i should have my book you know by next week thanks for taking the call guys we're gonna be done by the time folks get their book <laughs> i did not know this book was uh so sure we still would have read it but it just would have I, I just anyway we'll be done next week uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have commentary, great, uh, great point made by Mr. Demery, the proximity to the so-called end of slavery and just the, the time frame that all of this is happening. I think Jay in St. Louis pointed that out as well. Any other folks that uh, we've not heard from who have a hand up? We nab everybody or folks need a moment if you're in an out loud area. Uh, if folks are taking a moment, uh, some of the notes that I made from the first section. In fact, before I even get to my notes, a little bit from whew, two days in a row, Alice Walker, cow bell. Uh, so Alice Walker, who authored The Color Purple and many other works, The Temple of My Familiar. I read that one. Uh, she wrote the foreword, uh, as was previously mentioned, I believe, Jay in St. Louis, which was not included in the audiobook. I think this kind of should have been because Alice Walker did a lot of work and deserves a great deal of credit. As I said, Zora Neale Hurston was not like the popular figure that I think many of us think of today. Uh, as I said, their eyes are watching God is required reading in many schools at the time that she passed. That was not the case. And people like Alice Walker did a lot of work to bring her brilliance to greater attention. Anyway, so her forward is those who love us never leave us alone with our grief reading Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. So I'm not gonna read the whole thing. I'm fast forwarding through uh, so she writes, <clears throat> who could face this vision of the violently cruel behavior of the brethren and the sistren 
who first captured our ancestors? Who would want to know via a blow-by-blow account how African chiefs deliberately set out to capture Africans from neighboring tribes to provoke wars of conquest in order to capture for the slave trade people men, women, children who belonged to Africa? And to do this in so hideous a fashion that reading about it 200 years later brings waves of horror and distress. This is, make no mistake, a harrowing read. We are being shown the wound. However, Zora Hurston's genius has once again produced a masterpiece. What is a, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maestropiece, excuse me. What is a maestropiece? It is the feminine perspective or part of the structure, whether in stone or fancy, without which the entire edifice is a lie. And we have suffered so much from this one that Africans were only victims of the slave trade, not participants. Hmm. I will put a pin in that. Poor Zora, and an anthropologist no less, a daughter of Eatonville, Florida, where truth, what was real, what actually happened to somebody mattered. And so she sits with Cujo Lewis. She shares peaches and watermelon. Imagine how many generations of black people would never admit to eating watermelon. She gets the grisly story from one of the last people able to tell it how black people came to America, how we were treated by black and white, how black Americans enslaved themselves, ridiculed the Africans, making their lives so much harder. She goes on to give, I was going to say more detail, but it's not a whole lot more because this is not a very lengthy uh, forward. It's maybe a page or two more, and it was written in March of 2018. But that's the forward from Alice Walker. I would encourage folks, since this is such a short book, probably be good to go back and read the whole thing on your own time. It's very short. Uh, I should have asked as well what folks thought. Oh, I'm going to have to put a pin in that one for later to put a pin. I forgot. We have not gotten very far uh, in this text. Wait on that for later. The portion where she said Africans were only victims of the slave trade, not participants. Uh, I do not categorize myself as someone who has suffered from that view. In fact, I feel most of my life I have been reminded of that ad nauseum. Even when I was very confused about racism, white supremacy, I would have white and black people constantly, anytime slavery was mentioned, bring up that Africans sold other black people into slavery and and we should get reparated. I mean, constantly. So I I am not, uh, I do not consider myself as someone who has never heard this information or considered that. uh, And it's been my experience that many non-white people also, this is not new information to them. Next, I can just read uh, directly from my notes now and pick things up. Uh, So from the first introduction that we got, not the one that Zora Neale Hurston wrote, I just thought it was something so grand. Uh, Alice Walker talked about this as well. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, over months, going back and forth to talk to Mr. Lewis and bringing him peaches, Virginia hams, Vegan ham is not the best thing to eat. Uh, Summer watermelons. I am a huge watermelon fan. Bee brand insect powder. I have no idea what that is. If anyone can inform us, that would be great. But I just thought there was something really human uh, about that. Just 
sitting back in the summertime. Let's have some fruit and chat it up and tell me about your uh, experiences. Um, yeah, all of the detail I could see why whites might direct attention to a book like this, especially now when you have a lot of dialogue about racism uh, to detract away from the thought of black people are not just victims because black people practice racism too. See, I could see how they could love something like this and talking about these Dahomey Kings and beheadings and chopping off all that. Great. See, it's not just whites that function as psychopaths. I could see how they would really uh, exploit that if you are confused and are not following logic and how to process this. Uh, the use of the term exported I had a major problem with, uh, well, I can't give out page numbers, but it, uh, during the period from 1851 to 1860, approximately 22,500 Africans were exported. That just seems extraordinarily uh, incorrect for that term to be used, regardless of, you know, what you think about uh, what happened. Uh, the section where they talked about the benefactor, white benefactor, uh, suspected racist uh, Charlotte, Mason, uh, who contributed funds, I guess, to Zora Neale Hurston and Mr. Lewis, Cujo Lewis. There is a book TV presentation that Valerie Boyd did. She is a black female literary scholar. She wrote uh, a biography, uh, one of the prominent biographies on Zora Neale Hurston, Wrapped in Rainbows is the title. She did a book TV presentation in 2003 and she talks about this book. She talks about the allegations of plagiarism. Uh, she talks a lot of information uh, in the segment worth checking out. Might even be worth getting her biography to get more details about the life and times of Zora Neale Hurston, who is uh, just a really extraordinary person. Uh, but in that biography, she gives a lot or in this presentation, she gives a lot more detail about Charlotte Mason. And I in my view, it's a little sloppy because they do refer to her as the godmother in the text, Charlotte Mason, but they give no context for that. She referred to herself or excuse me, make sure I give it correctly. So when she would give out money to Negras like Zora Neale Hurston, myself, if I had been alive at that time, she would require that they refer to her as godmother. Not having that information in the text, in my view, major act of racism on the part of any white person who was involved with this book directly, indirectly, and the word exported. That's another major one that's going to be uh, sticking my craw for a while. Uh, but leaving that bit of information out, because I think she also uh, might have given a few nickels to Langston Hughes uh, as well. But that was the requirement. And then she could come and nitpick in your Well, I don't think you should be working on this project. Better listen to Godmother. I don't think you should be working on this project. I don't think it should sound this way. And from what I heard in Mrs. Boyd's presentation, she might have been indirectly, directly involved in a feud between Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes about a project that they were working on together. The Godmother. They don't necessarily have to get into all that information, but it's no way that you can just throw in a sly reference to this woman as the godmother with no explanation. In my view, if you don't know that, it would be confusing as even what are they talking about? Why is it godmother with a G? Who are they talking about? Act of racism in my part. Uh, uh, excuse me. Act of racism in my view. Next. 
the I think red made a point, which I, I said, wow, I'll have to give that some thought about this notion of authenticity uh, as it relates to to getting uh, a Negra that does not speak the Queen's King's English uh, to, you know, get every mispronunciation or chopping off of a syllable or what have you. Uh, and that's authentic Negro speak. Yes, that's the way we want it. Like I had not really uh, considered that in this context uh, because I guess my thinking with Mr. Lewis, at least I certainly can see with, with some of the other context, absolutely what the point that you're making, but with Mr. Lewis, like what they were saying in the introduction about he literally, the way that he speaks, this is someone who literally had to make a new way of talking, uh, literally. Like I did not, I was not speaking this language before. I was terrorized, stolen, a uh, whole new way of life while I'm being terrorized. And now I got to figure out a whole new way to communicate. And I think that's going to come up more as we proceed. Uh, but preserving this newly formed way that he's speaking that really is is just more evidence of how he's been victimized i don't know i see uh i see a i see a value especially since there was so much resistance that was from what i've read what i've heard thus far that was a principal reason why this book was not published initially was that they wanted her to change the language they were not saying yes we want the authentic nigra dialect it was oh we don't want that nigra talk we want it to you know talk like a white person we want this to be proper english and her refusal to do so was a, a major reason why it wasn't published originally so hmm, i'll have to think about that if other folks have thoughts i would love to hear them as we proceed from the second introduction of the text now this is uh zora neale hurston uh where she says it had long been a part of the traitor's policy to instigate the tribes against each other, in quotes, so that plenty of prisoners would be taken and in this manner keep the markets stocked. I'm fast forwarding down to the last sentence. The, the quarreling of the tribes on Sierra Leone River rendered the aspect of things very unsatisfactory. Uh, and just, oh, wait a minute. And that's from a paper in Mobile, uh, Mobile, Alabama, where they are keeping an eye on quarreling Negras in Sierra Leone and how that's going to impact their business. Uh, and this is all footnoted if we want to talk about uh, plagiarism, which I thought you all made great points. Uh, but footnoted uh, where she got all this information from uh, Historic Sketches of the South, published in 1914. She's got the exact page number in the whole nine, not that I need all that confirmation but just that alone the evidence is right in your face anyone who gets confused dismayed uh into thinking who is ultimately to blame who is most culpable for this it's not saying that uh myself or any non-white person any victim of racism is perfect it's not saying that we have all responded correctly uh in any phase of racism white supremacy but all of that being said all of these errors our responses are real meager in comparison to the terrorism and aggression that has been waged against us for centuries. Uh, and as we had uh, the author of the Zong, this is one of the uh, slave ships uh, that they had with Negras. Uh, it was a white male in the UK. He was on the program in 2016 and he tried to run the same nonsense racism. And I said, oh, I'm going to use the logic in your book, the evidence in your book. 
he talks about how you have all of these cities in Europe that are palaces right now, 21st century, where you can see the opulence of how rich they got as a result of stealing and trading in Negras. I said, point to the spot on the continent that is, hey, these folks are balling right now today as a result of selling Negras. And we had phone silence. Excellent piece of evidence from uh, Zora Neale Hurston with the quote I just read. Uh, and then the last thing I'll get in, uh, where she talked about the Africans were kept at Dabney's place for 11 days. This is after they had been stolen and brought across the Atlantic, being only allowed to talk in whispers and being constantly moved from place to place. Even back then, keep the squatters moving. They have an understanding, long refined, developed understanding of how to keep non-white people in a state of chaos and confusion. Uh, did any other folks uh, that dialed in have commentary they wanted to share? Uh, anybody that we missed completely? Can I be here? Greetings, Ivy. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers on the line. Uh, three, three quick questions. And one, uh, did, do you know if the PayPal funds were released to you? I can confirm in one second. Just give me a, a moment. Oh, I appreciate you looking it up right now. You don't have to. Oh, you can ask, I guess, your other question while I'm checking. Or oh, questions. Yeah, because the, the thing was, I, I actually disputed a claim on PayPal for a different purchase, and they so-called accidentally applied it to yours, but that, you know, supposedly has been resolved and even was resolved yesterday, supposedly, so hopefully those funds were rele um, released to you. My second question was, <clears throat> excuse me, what were you saying um, when you when you mentioned the quote about uh, black people or Africans, I don't remember the term that was used, were victims? of slavery uh, and not participants uh, you were making you have made a point about that and i missed that and i wanted to know what you were saying what your point was with that i think i was reading the quote from the forward that alice walker wrote uh, where she was saying i guess we've suffered from the notion that africans were victims only and talking about slavery or racism perhaps uh, and I was saying that in my view, the folks that are most culpable uh, are whites uh, and that I have heard that I do not think I have never heard that black people participated in selling black people into slavery. That's something that I have heard frequently throughout my life from whites and black people and that most of the non-white people that I've been around, this seems to be something that they have heard or even might be something that they, you know, pronounce, announce on a regular basis if a conversation of racism comes up that I just want to make a point that I dispute uh, the notion that this is something we don't consider or think about or reflect on. Oh, okay. And my last question was to you and to everyone on the line is, is that what evidence was presented in this book so far? And if it hasn't been, I'd like this to be an ongoing question. That's kind of a compensatory request. Was presented in this book that Africans um, enslaved each other and sold each other to white people? Like, did Mr. Lewis say he saw? Africans selling him? Um, was there any evidence besides assertion, besides people just 
claiming and stating that this is what happened. Because um, ultimately, you know, we get our information from white people and they lie and they're even trying to change, as you pointed out, the Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. Is it Thomas Jefferson? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that, that, you know, he raped her and, they, and they, that's what they said, you know, a long time ago and now they're trying to say it was a love affair and this, that and the other. And so, you know, I just may have missed it and I just wanted to know from you and from everyone on the line who, you know, is, you know, can, can answer this question, was there evidence, what evidence was presented that those claims are true, that Africans um, enslaved each other and that they sold each other to white people. And that was it. And I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Well, we have not heard from Mr. Lewis directly yet. We haven't got to chapter one, but my assumption, certainly being careful of those, my assumption is that he's going to say this directly. And then, you know, that would be on the reader us to decide if we believe him or not. Uh, I think ultimately all the evidence that I've heard about this has been presented from books. Uh, I think that's about the only piece of evidence that they would be able to give at this point that this took place. Uh, books from people who allegedly say, hey, this happened. Ultimately, you can believe or reject that. Uh, at the end of the day, if it is true, I insert the logic that I just used. The people that are most to blame for this would still be racist man, racist woman. If it's not true, primary weapon in the system of white, uh, white supremacy is deception. They lie a lot. We still have to solve the system. So I would be at the same point either way. Uh, other folks, you can keep that. I guess we can address this continually as we proceed. Oh, did you have other questions, Ivy? Did you have your comment? You had your questions. Did you have your commentary? I just wanted to um, ask about, um, because someone said black people sold me and white people bought me. That wasn't Mr. Lewis who said that? Well, we haven't got to Mr. Lewis yet. That's we've we've had two different introductions, and then I read a little bit of Alice Walker's forward, but we have not got to anything from Mr. Lewis directly at all. Do you know who that quote was from? That white people bought me and um, black people sold me. I think they were probably talking about Mr. Lewis, or you can insert other name, but uh, all of this has just been other people talking about how this project came together and then Zora Neale Hurston herself talking about how this project came together. But I'll look for that quote uh, directly. They were probably talking about Mr. Lewis, though. Oh, OK, that was it. I'll my line. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Right on. Uh, the. Oh, that's the epigraph. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston just dust tracks on a road. Uh, that's the very beginning of the book, like a little quote that they have to start, which I was correct, not Mr. Lewis speaking at all. And that's Zora Neale Hurston, not even talking about this book, uh, but it reads, but the inescapable fact that stuck in my crawl was my people had sold me and the white people had brought me. It impressed upon me the universal nature of greed and glory. Zora Neale Hurston dust tracks on a road. So that is a quote from a totally different book that they just include at the beginning of this book, the epigraph, as they say. Uh, while other folks, one question that I do want to put out, uh, what thoughts do people, I keep having to hold, I keep, <laughs> we have not heard from Mr. Lewis. 
I will hush. I will hush. Did other folks have uh, commentary uh, based on what we've heard or if you wanted to, to answer any of the questions that have been posed, uh, proceed. Uh, okay. Oh, I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait. Red and Thank you. I'll, I'll make it quick. All right. Thank you. I'll, I'll make it quick. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention that I forgot, um, I did like how uh, Ms. Hurston, um, she, in when they were speaking about her, I'm not sure if this was her, her words or when they were speaking about um, just the, her um, wanting to preserve black folk or black folklore and how she was trying to share to Mr. Lewis to really not give his story to um, too many people or anyone, especially not white people, because they should not benefit off of something that, um, you know, they you know, the oppression or what have you, um, that they put black people through. And I definitely thought that that was, um, an example of black self-respect at least, uh, to me and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Much obliged. Jay in St. Louis. Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll just make it real quick. It was just two things. Uh, I wanted to compliment, uh, Ivy. That is fucking stellar. Attention to detail, uh, that whole just questioning and inquiring about the nature uh, that that fact was introduced within the text has really brought forth some things. Uh, I think that's great points. Uh, or oh, I appreciate you for going back and reading that epigraph, uh, Gus, and putting it all in context. And it really puts our learning environment about the subject matter in context as well, that there are these constant narratives that try to blame the victim. So I, I'm really enjoying that piece. And then secondly, there's this uh, point of communication. Uh, you brought it up earlier, Gus, about him having to formulate a new speech pattern. And Zora Neale Hurston, uh, part of my respect uh, for her stems from uh, this consistent effort with her, within her scholarship. This is seen within their eyes of watching God and other work she's worked on as well, really capturing the, um, dialect of African descended people um, in the American South during a time when she was really hated for doing such things. Um, so uh, with that, um, I think this point of communication within uh, articulating what exactly happened, uh, what we've inherited from more traditional African societies, which I'm sure had contradictions and squabbles like any human society, uh, whatever the nature of those were, in articulating those and Formulating those now, I think we see uh, mistakes within Alice Walker's uh, recollection and reintroduction and rationalization of these purported incidents where Africans sold Africans. Um, and so I think that that entire process is still up for heavy consideration. And this, you know, this process of questioning how it's even presented to us now helps us think about it more. Uh, and that's all I want to say. Grants, we will have to pause here. And if you have additional comments, you can get them after the second audio segment concludes. Very easy to pick up because we're starting on chapter one. We will finally get to, I think, hear from Mr. Cujo Lewis. This is the legendary Zora Neale Hurston Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. The cows audio segment number two. Chapter one. It was summer when I went to talk with Kudjo, so his door was standing wide open. But I knew he was somewhere about the house before I entered the yard, because I had found the gate unlocked. 
when Cudjo goes down into his back field or away from home, he locks his gate with an ingenious wooden peg of African invention. I hailed him by his African name as I walked up the steps to his porch, and he looked up into my face as I stood in the door in surprise. He was eating his breakfast from a round, enameled pan with his hands, in the fashion of his fatherland. The surprise of seeing me halted his hand between pan and face. Then tears of joy welled up. Oh, Lord, I know it you call my name. Nobody don't call him my name from across the water but you. You always call him me, Kazula, just like I in the Africa soil. I noted that another man sat eating with him, and I wondered why. So I said, I see you have company, Kazula. Yeah, I got to have somebody stay with me. I've been sick in the bed to five months. I needed somebody to hand me some water. So I take this man and he sleep here and take care, Kucho. But I get it well now. In spite of the recent illness and the fact that his well had fallen in, I found Kajo Lewis full of gleaming goodwill. His garden was planted. There was deep shade under his chinaberry tree, and all was well. He wanted to know a few things about New York, and when I had answered him, he sat silently smoking. Finally, I told him I had come to talk with him. He removed his pipe from his mouth and smiled. I don't care, he said. I like her company come see me. Then the smile faded into a wretched weeping mask. I was so lonely. My wife, she left me since the 1908. Cudgel all by himself. After a minute or two, he remembered me and said contritely, Excuse me, you didn't do nothing to me. Cudgel feels so lonely, he can't help he cries sometimes. What you want with me? First, I want to ask you how you feel today. Another muted silence, then he said, I thank God I own praying ground and in a Bible country. But didn't you have a God back in Africa? I asked him. His head dropped between his hands and the tears sprung fresh. Seeing the anguish in his face, I regretted that I had come to worry this captive in a strange land. He read my face and said, Excuse me, I cry. I can't help it when I hear the name call. Oh, Lord, I no see Africa's soil no more. Another long silence. Then, how come you asked me ain't we had no God back there in Africa? Because you said, thank God you were on praying ground and in a Bible country. Yeah, in Africa we always know there was a God. He named Alawa. But po Africans, we can't read it the Bible, so we don't know God got a son. We ain't ignorant. We just don't know. Nobody don't tell us about Adam eating the apple. We didn't know the seven seas were silly against us. Our parents don't tell us that. They didn't tell us about the first days. No, that's all right. We just don't know. So that would you come after me? I temporized. Well, yes. I wanted to ask that, but I want to ask you many things. I want to know who you are and how you came to be a slave and to what part of Africa do you belong and how you fared as a slave and how you have managed as a free man. 
Again his head was bowed for a time. When he lifted his wet face again, he murmured, Thank you, Jesus. Somebody come asked about Cudgel. I won't tell somebody who I is. So maybe they go into Africa saw someday and call him my name, and somebody dare say, Yeah, I know, Kazula. I want you everywhere you go to tell everybody what Cudgel say. And how come I in America saw since the 1859 and never see my people no more? I can't talk it plain. You understand me. But I calls it word by word for you, so it won't be too crooked for you. My name is not Cudjo Lewis. It's Kozula. When I get it in America, so, Mr. Jim Mayer, he try calling my name, but it's too long, you understand me? So I say, well, are your property? He say, yeah. Then I say, you calling me Kudjo, that do. But in Africa, so, my mama, she named me Kozula. My people, you understand me? They ain't got no ivory by their dough. When it ivory from the elephant stand by their dough, then that a king, a ruler, you understand me? My father, neither his father, don't rule nobody. The old folks that lived 200 years before our bone, don't tell me the father, remote ancestor, rule nobody. My people in Africa, you understand me, they not rich. That's the truth now. I'm not going to tell you my folks, they rich and come from high blood. Then when you go into Africa soil and ask to the people, they say, well, Kazula over there in America soil telling the folks he rich? I tell you like it is. Now, that's right, ain't it? My father's father, you understand me, he a officer of the king. He don't live in the compound with us. Wherever the king go, he go, you understand me? The king give him plenty land and get plenty cows and goats and sheep. Now, that's right. Maybe after a while he'd be a little chief. I don't know. But he died when I little boy. What he going to be later on, that don't reach him. My grandpa, he a great man. I tell you how he go. I was afraid that Kudjo might go off on a tangent, so I cut in with, But Kasula, I want to hear about you and how you lived in Africa. He gave me a look full of scornful pity and asked, where is the house where the mouse is the leader? In the Africa soil, I can't tell you about the son before I tell you about the father. And therefore, you understand me, I can't talk about the man who is father, Itty, till I tell you about the man who he fathered to him, Itty, grandfather. Now, that's right, ain't it? My grandpa, you understand me, he got the great big compound. He got plenty wives and children. His house, it is in the center of the compound. In Africa, so the house of the husband, it always in the center. And the houses of the wives, they in a circle round the house the husband live in. He don't think himself to marry with so many women. No, in the Africa, soil, it the wife that go find him another wife. Suppose I in the Africa, soil. Kudjo, he been married for seven years, for example. His wife said, Kudjo, I'm growing old. I'm tired. I will bring you another wife. Before she speak of that, she got the girl who he don't know in her mind. She a girl, she think very nice. Maybe her husband never see her. 
Well, she go out in the marketplace, maybe in the public square. She see this a girl and asking the girl, you know Cudjo. The girl tell you, I've heard of him. The wife say Cudjo is good. He is kind. I like you to be his wife. The girl say, come with me to my papa and mama. They go, you understand me, to the girl's parents together. They asked her questions, and she answered for her husband. She asked them questions, too. And if both sides satisfied with one another, the girl's parents say, we give our daughter into your care. She ain't ours no more. You be good to her. The wife, she come back to Cudjo and making the arrangements. Cudjo got to pay the father for the girl. If she be a rich girl that been in the fat house long time, you understand me? He got to pay two of everything for her. Two cow, two sheep, two goat, chickens, yeah, maybe gold. The rich man keep his daughter in the fat house long time. Sometime two year. She get it to dinner in there eight times a day, and they don't leave her get in and out of bed by herself. The one what keep the fat house, he lift them in and out so they don't lose the fat. The man not so rich, he can't keep his girl there long, so she not so fat. So poor man don't send his daughter. Therefore, you understand me? The man paid different price for a different girl. If she the daughter of a poor family, or she'd been married before or something, he don't pay much for her. When the new wife come first to her husband compound, she live in the house with the old wife. She teach her what to do and how to take care of the husband. When she learn all that, then she have a house by herself. When they get it ready to build it, the new house, the man take it, the machete, and chop the palm tree to mark the place where the house gonna be built. Then he throw down a cow and have plenty of palm wine. Then all the people come and eat it, the meat, and drink the wine, and stomp the place smooth and build it the house. My grandpa, he built the wife house many times. Some men in the Africa so I don't get a no wife because they can't buy none. They ain't got nothing to give, so a wife can come to them. Some got too many. When you hungry, it is painful. But when the belly too full, it painful too. All the wives make food, udia, for the husband. All the men, they like it, fufu. He eat it, the big calabash full to the top with fufu. Then my grandpa, he lay down to sleep. The young wives, before they are old enough to take up the actual duties of wifehood, help put the husband to sleep. One make a wind farm with a fan. Another one rub the head. Maybe one clean the hands and somebody look after the toenails. Then he sleepy and snow. Somebody stand guard before the door so nobody make noise and wake him. Sometimes the son of a slave in the compound make it too much noise. The man would stand guard, catch him, and take him to my grandpa. He sit up and look at the boy so. Then he asked him, Whoever tell you that the mouse can walk across the roof of the mighty? Where is that Portuguese man? I swap you for tobacco. In the olden days, I walk on your skin. That is, I would kill you and make shoes from your hide. I'd drink water from your skull. I would have killed you and used your head for a drinking cup. My grandpa say that, but he don't never ask the chief to sell it nobody to the Portuguese. Some chief 
They get him mad when they slave, talk is so sassy, and don't do work like they tell him. Then they sell him to the Portuguese. The chief throw orange under the table. Then he called the slave boy he go and sell and say to the boy, pick me the orange under the table. The boy stoop under the table. The chief got a man standing there, maybe two. When the boy go under the table to get it the orange, the chief say, Kitchi the bushman. The man grab the boy and sell him. The chief, he ain't always glad. One day the wife die. She's still in the old wife's house and ain't never been no wife to the chief yet. She too young. Why she die, Kudjo don't know. When they come to tell the chief his young wife dead, he go up. He slap his hand on his wrist, then he scream in his fist and cry. He say, yeah, 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 my wife dead. All my goods wasted. I pay big price for her. I fattened her, and now she dead, and I never sleep with her once. Yeah, yeah, I lose so much. She dead and still a virgin. Yeah, yeah, two yeah. I have a great loss. Kajo looked out over his patch of pole beans towards the house of his daughter-in-law. I waited for him to resume, but he just sat there not seeing me. I waited, but not a sound. Presently, he turned to the man sitting inside the house and said, Go fetch me some cool water. The man took the pail and went down the path between the rows of pole beans to the well in the daughter-in-law's yard. He returned, and Kasula gulped down a healthy cupful from a homemade tin cup. Then he sat and smoked his pipe in silence. Finally, he seemed to discover that I was still there. Then he said brusquely, Go leave me alone, cut your tired. Come back tomorrow. Don't come in the morning, cause then I'll be in the garden. Come when it's hot, then Kudjo sit in the house. So I left Kudjo sitting in his door with his bare feet exposed to the cloud of mosquitoes that swarmed in the shade of the inside of his house. Chapter 2 The King Arrives The next day about noon... I was again at Kazula's gate. I brought a gift this time, a basket of Georgia peaches. He received me kindly and began to eat the peaches at once. Mary and Martha, the twin daughters of his granddaughter, wandered up to the steps. The old man's love of these children was quite evident. With glad eyes, he selected four of the finest peaches and handed two to each little girl. He scolded them on off to play with affectionate abuse. When they were gone, he looked lovingly after them and pointed to a little clump of sugar cane in the garden. See that cane, he asked. I nodded that I did. Well, I plant that cane. Tain't much, but I grow that so when Martha and Mary come to me and say, Grandpa, I wanted some cane, I go cut and give them. There is a large peach tree in the yard that bears small but delicious clingstone peaches, they were beginning to ripen. The old man gave me one or two and put away one for each of the twins. I was shown all over the gardens. Kazula was genial, but not one word about himself fell from his lips. So I went away and came again the following day. I brought another gift, a box of bee brand insect powder to burn in the house to drive out all the mosquitoes. 
he was in a vocal mood and could scarcely wait until I set the powder burning to talk about his Africa. So we settled on the porch and he talked. I reminded him that he'd been telling me about the chief's losing a wife under such unfortunate circumstances and about his grandfather's compound. Now, don't forget in nothing. I remember everything since I defied you. Yeah, my grandpa, he a officer of the king. He be with the king everywhere he go, you understand me? Therefore, you understand me, one man, he kill a leopard. Well, the king don't care about he kill a leopard, but the law say that when a man kill a leopard, he got to bring it to the king. The king don't want to take the beast away from the man would kill it, you understand me? But he got to take the big hairs, whiskers to grow round the mouth. They're very poison, and the king don't want none of the people to get a kill. Some men's they wicked, you understand me, and they take the hairs and make the poison. Therefore, you know the king say when any man killed a leopard, he got to cover the head so no woman can see it and bring the leopard to the king. Then the drums go beat, and call all brave chiefs come discuss this leopard that been killed. The king, he keep the head, the liver, the gall, and the skin. That always belonged to the king. It all make it different medicine, all the body. It he dried and make him more medicine, too. But some tribe make fetish and eat the flesh, so they eated the medicine, you know. Therefore, when a man killed the leopard and take the hairs before he let the king know he killed the leopard, they kill that man. He a wicked man. One man, you know, he killed a leopard. He covered the head and tied the body to a young tree, tied by the feet to a pole so that it could be carried. Well, the king call all the chiefs and they come looky. They take off the cover from the head and the king look at the hairs. He see one hair, it gone from the hole in the face where it grow. All the chief they looky too. They see the hair ain't there. So they call the man. The king say, well, you kill it, this beast? The man say, yeah, I kill him. How you kill this leopard? With the spear, I kill him. Did you touch the head? No, I don't touch the head at all. I only a common man, and I know the head belong to the king, so I don't touch it. The king look at the head and look at the man. He say, how is it this beast got the hole for the hair, but one hair not there? Tell me where the hair is. I see where it pull out. Who is it that you want to kill? The man say, I don't want killing nobody. I ain't touching the hair. That's the truth now. If I touch the hair, let NCBD, that is, may I be turned over to the executioner. NCBD being the name for the executioner. Well, they search the man and find the hair. Then they try him. All day, they talk palaver. So next day, they find him guilty. So they say he got to die. Be a wicked man, would expect to kill somebody with the hair. Therefore, you understand me? They tie him by the left foot and wait for Akuire Usen. King's day or great day. All executions being saved for this day, though a few are executed on the Queen's day, then they take him to the place of sacrifice. The king come with his seat, and all the chiefs bring their stool too, 
they seated themselves and they drum beat. It speak with the voice of the king. Then three in CBD come in the place and dance. One have a mouthpiece that rattle. He shake the mouthpiece that rattle. He shake the mouthpiece and sing. What he sing? Could you going tell you? On a great day like this, we kill the one that is evil. On a day like this, we kill the bad one. Who would command the poison one from the leopard to kill us? On a great day like this, we kill him. Who would kill the innocent? He danced some more with the drum and the two other dancing with him. Then he sings some more. A great knife that eats no other blood but human blood. Let it kill him. Eat a great knife. It feed the earth. A great knife that eats no other blood but human blood. They dance some more when the king make a sign. They dance up to the man where he tied at and with one lick, choppy the head off. The head fall to the ground and the mouth works so. It open and shut many times. But quick, they put a piece of the stick from the banana tree in the mouth. Then they can open the jaw when they get it ready. If they don't do that, the jaw close and they can't get it open no more. The body of the man, they bury it in the ground. The head, they put it in the sacrifice place with the other heads. The king go back to his village, but the chief have caught every day. All day, somebody say to him, this man... Touch my wife. This a man commit adultery. Everything be done open there. Not so many secrets. When a man kills somebody there, he be tried open and all the boys and men in the village hear the trial. I don't know how come he done it. But one man kill another one with the spear. So they rested that man and tie his hands with palm cord. Then they pick up the dead man and carry him to the public square. The marketplace, you understand. Then they send message by the drum to the king in the village where he at to come set on the trial inside the case. In Africa, you understand, if somebody steal or commit adultery, the chief of the village, he try him. But if a man kill somebody, then they send for the king and he come inside the case. Therefore, when this man... Spear the other one to the breast. They send word for the king to come. The old folks, you understand me, the wise ones, they go out in the woods and get the leaves. They know which ones. And mash it the leaves with water. Then they paint the dead man all over with this so he don't spoil till the king come. Maybe the king don't get there till the next day. When the king come, my grandfather, he come with him. Before Anybody see the king? We know he is almost there because we hear the drum. When a little chief travel, he go quiet. But when the king go any place, you understand me, the drum go before to let the people know the king come. That night, everybody sit up with the dead man all night and eat meat and drink palm wine and banana beer. Late the next day, you understand me, the king come with the chiefs of the other villages to help him side the case. So the chief of our village, he went out a short way to meet the king. Then he put down and kill cows and goats. It's too late that day to hold a trial, you understand me. So they decided to hold it next day. So they did. 
the king. He takes a special seat they bring for him, and the chiefs from the other towns, they sit on their stool of rank in different places around the square. The dead man is lying on the ground in the center where everybody see him. The man that kill him, he tied where folks can see him too. Therefore, they try the man. They're asking the man why he kill this other one. He said the man worked juju against him, so his child died, and his cows, they stay sick all the time. The king say, if this man worked juju against you, why don't you tell the chief and the headman of the village? Why don't you tell the king? Don't you know we got law for people that work juju? You ain't supposed to kill the man. So they talk, and all the chiefs sitting round, they ask him questions too. In Afriki, the law is the law, and no man can make out he crazy like here and get excuse from the law. If you kill anybody, you going to die too. They going to kill you. So the king say, I hear the evidence, but this man got no cause to kill that other one. Therefore, he must die. The man stand there. He don't cry. He don't talk. He just looks straight at the king. Then all the chiefs, they get around the king, and they talk he while ain't nobody know what they say but them. Then all the chiefs, they go back and take it their seats again. Then the drums begin to play. The big drum, katakumba, the drum that speaks like a man, it begins to talk. And the man, what is in Sibidi, he begins to dance. They lead the murderer out into the center of the square. The in Sibidi, he dance. He gestures, and as he danced, he watched the eye of the king and the eye of all the chiefs. One man will give him the sign. Nobody know which one will give the sign. They sighed that when they was whispering together. Therefore, the executioner danced until he get the sign at the hand. Then he danced up to the murderer and touched his breast with the point of the machete. He danced away again. And the next time, he touched the man's neck with his knife. The third time that he touched the man, other men rush out and seize the murderer and take at the palm cord and stretch him face to face upon the dead man and tie him tight so he can move himself. When the executioner touched the murderer with his knife, that is a sign that he is dead already. So they wrapped the cord around his neck and around the neck of the dead man. They wrap the cord around his body and around the body of the dead man. They wrap his arm and the dead man's arm with the same cord. His leg is wrapped as one with the leg of the dead man he done killed. So they leave him there. His nose is tied to the nose of the dead man. His lips touch the lips of the corpse. So they leave him. The king and the chief talk palava about other things, while they watch the struggles of the murderer. Sometime, if he be a strong man, and the person he kill be little, he manage to get up and go a little away with the body. But if the corpse be heavy, he lay right there till he die. If he cry for water, nobody pay no attention to him, because he is dead since the machete first touched him. So they say, how can a dead man want water? If he cry to be cut loose, nobody pay attention to him. They say, how can a dead man want to be loose? The other dead man don't cry, 
how come this man cry? So they leave him there. But people watch until he die too. How long it take? Sometime he die next day. Sometime two or three days. He don't live long. People can stand the smell of the horse, the cow, and other beasts. But no man can stand the smell in his nostrils of a rotten man. Context of white supremacy. I was going to check the audiobook one more time. Uh, like, this cannot be, this book cannot be this short. It really is this short. But it does look like it's long enough that we probably won't be able to finish it all next week. We'll probably have uh, a third section uh, that'll be really short. So if you are getting the book in the next few days, you will have exactly two. Really, it'll be like one and a half uh, sessions to enjoy and read along Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo context of white supremacy if you have commentary you would like to share thoughts on what we heard we will pick up next friday on chapter three uh the number again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, thoughts you would like to share on what we've heard thus far, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, the part where Hurston uh, was interrupted by Kosala uh, uh, when uh, she wanted to ask him more about himself uh, than his lineage. And uh, Kosla was uh, saying that uh, you can't tell him, you know, in, in, in paraphrasing, you know, he says that you can't, can't talk about himself unless he talks about his father and his grandfather. And that's how it's done in Africa. And it, it, it goes to show the context that Kosala is trying to tell his story and actually, it, it's kind of a connection of what we were talking about earlier in regards to, you know, Africans, you know, enslaving Africans for the slave trade because the context is not there. You know, all we hear about is, oh, well, Africans, you know, enslave Africans, and that's about it. And no context about who started the slave trade, you know, which was, you know, white people. So, uh, you know, I, I find that very interesting that Kosovoid you know, makes that connection of context and how he tells the story because he wants to, he wants uh, uh, Hurston to understand where he's coming from, you know, and he also gives a context that is not just about him. It's about his culture and where he comes from. So, uh, you know, you, you just, you know, like uh, in Africa, you just can't talk about yourself, you know, without talking about the village and what's going on. So, uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, lots of biblical references, uh, you know, like directly, uh, where he basically talks about, uh, you know, when uh, he said uh, Africans, uh, no one in Africa read the Bible, but, you know, he learned about God having a son and had a meeting for the tree and the seven seals from the Revelations book, uh, and also indirect biblical references about his granddaughters, Mary and Martha, uh, two characters from the uh, the Gospel of Luke, 
And uh, that's all I have right now. I'm my line. Much obliged. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, questions, proceed. Maybe I'll, I'll go last. Proceed, oh, okay. Because I'm actually in the group. Um, can Ray go? Because I actually need to go pull up something that I was going to say. Oh, okay. Uh, if you, I guess, are prepared, uh, Red in Nevada. Um, yes, thank you for allowing me to share again. Um, I definitely appreciate the story um, that uh, that Kojo was telling, and just like the previous caller, I thought it is um, very nice. I was thinking about just um, how storytelling um, is different from how, like, with uh, people who are descendants of, of the American chattel slavery, um, how it seems like they start off with themselves and they kind of incorporate their ancestors verse um, with Kojo, um, how he started off with his ancestor, and then I'm assuming he's going to um, start and, you know, proceed with talking about himself. I think that that's definitely a more, um, maybe a better way of starting off the story, um, like uh, if you're going to say anything about yourself or tell a story about yourself. So I do appreciate that. Um, I I definitely appreciate just the details about um, his tribe and even with the king taking like how he would take on wives. And I feel like just from what I've heard, especially with, um, what is it, uh, polyamory, or like just, uh, I guess I mainly hear of it more in like with the Mormon context. But so I definitely appreciate it coming from from his from his tribe and how the wives go out and find other wives if you know when they're too tired and even if they get a young wife it's not in the pedophilic way that white people have kind of made it seem as if that's how Africans would take young wives when maybe this how white people they would actually take young wives to sexually sewer them um, but in Africa they were at least with his tribe they would wait until the time was right or what what have you. I, I really appreciated that fact. Um, and I guess uh, that that's all I would, that's all I'll share right now. Thank you for allowing me to share. Much obliged, Red. Did you need any additional time, uh, Ivy, or were you, did you have whatever material you wanted to share? Yeah, I'm good to go. Um, I just wanted to say really quickly, first of all, thanks to um, JSA Lewis for your, your kind words. Um, and um, not read, but the, the caller before her, he made a statement that um, as far as the, as far as slavery, we hear that, you know, Africans sold each other and that's it. Um, and that's one of the many holes in that story that has me very doubtful. I just want to, um, Stay for the record that I am convinced that that is a lie that Africans sold each other, um, and that's why I made a statement about you know is there any evidence other than assertions, other than claims? I mean, because if, even if Kojo said it himself, first of all, he probably was a child. I don't think anybody would have still been alive that was an adult when that happened, and 
So with that being said, unless he is going to say that he saw sales going on, um, I'll just take it as, you know, that's what people told him. And so that's, you know, what he believes. And I just want to quote someone really quickly. Um, I think that they had a great quote and it, it, um, it articulates why I have so many doubts. Um, they said, I have, I have yet to find any scholar, learned person of African history or otherwise, who could explain to me with certainty exactly how Africans spoke one, who spoke one or a multitude of various languages communicated with the Europeans who spoke either English, Dutch, German, French, Italian, or Portuguese. Please explain to me again exactly how they communicated to engage in commerce such as slavery and exactly what were they given for these people. And um, let me see. And then, they, then this is just a statement where they just said, well, they're just kind of making an assertion that really doesn't, um, I mean, it, I agree with what, what they're saying, but it's not necessary for me to say it. Now, ultimately, it speaks to what the caller before Red said, that we just kind of hear Africans sold each other the end. Like, there's no context or no anything. And I think the reason for that, <clears throat> excuse me, is because it's a lie. However, if anyone can, if anyone has any evidence besides assertion, whether it be in books or anywhere, because, I mean, I would think that that's all you're going to find in books as well. You're just going to find claims. If anybody can present any evidence besides claims where there's context or just any reason to really believe that, then I will certainly concede. But I just haven't seen any evidence, and nobody has just been able to explain it to me like, a, like with any type of certainty. All I'm hearing all the time is claims, whether it be online or anything else. And so, you know, and I'll say this too, this last thing the clip that we just heard, like the background of, of his family and things like that, that was um, very interesting. But I just wanted to say that and uh, I'll meet my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Indeed. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, commentary, question you want to add, line should be open. Proceed. Uh, we'll take Mr. Demery for first. Okay. Uh, I would like to point out uh, the fact <clears throat> of his memory. He had a very good memory. He said he could mem remember things when he was five years old. So he had a pretty vivid memory of events that was happening in his village, even at a young age. Uh, the part about the fattening house or where you, I guess you put the wives and uh, they uh, guess feed them real well so that they can gain weight. You know, that's uh, uh, something that uh, it's been rumored that, you know, uh, the more weight that a woman has, the more, um, I guess, status, uh, the more capable, I guess, that she is in, uh, in that society. And also, uh, you know, the horrific, um, uh, the system court system, 
that they have uh, for murderers um, when they described how they tied a living man to a dead corpse and just to see how long he could last. And I think uh, um, Scujo was saying that he only lasts about three days because you can't stand the smell. Um, uh, that's pretty horrific. But um, I'll mute my line. Uh, thanks for taking the call, bro. Appreciate that, Mr. Demery Four. Uh, any other folks dialed in uh, that we've not heard from uh, have commentary, question that they wanted to share? Line should be open. Oh, uh, I think that was retired firefighter uh, that had a hand up. Retired firefighter, thank you for your patience, sir. If you had commentary, you should be with us. Greetings. Uh, I thought. I thought. Uh... What was the, what was the, uh, the, the, uh, I assume he was an African person. What was his name? Uh, Cujo, but he said his African name was Casulo. So that's what I'm going to be calling for the rest of the reading. Casulo. Casulo. Right on. Right. Mr. Casula seems to was making a lot of logic. Uh, I was listening to the, uh, especially the first part under the people activity of religion. And, uh, uh, he was being, he seemed to be making some very logical comments and analysis based on what he understands. And the, the, uh, I would say the, uh, incorrect, uh, uh, assumptions of what, the global system of racism, white supremacy does uh, in Africa as well as anywhere they've been around the world uh, with the religion that they guise as Christianity, but it actually is white supremacy. Uh, He was like making some uh, pretty sharp uh, logical determinations uh, uh, based on what was being presented to him as opposed to what he what he knows and or doesn't know. And he was, he was making the logical understanding that about what he doesn't know. You know, in other words, uh, uh, this information is telling me something, but I don't know if, I don't know if, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he was saying, I don't, I don't know if that's, you know, correct or not. It's just what somebody is telling me. Uh, and I thought that was, I thought it was interesting in the, uh, in the second half of the, uh, of the narr- uh, narrating. Uh, yeah. Did that make sense? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. Oh, was that, that was all you were going to add retired firefighter? Yeah, that, that 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 was it. That was it. I, I was I was just listening to that. I, the the uh, what what's happening with me? I'm kind of like attempting. To, I was attempting to drive uh, home, and my Bluetooth wasn't really working, so I was just listening to the the phone as it was on the seat as I was driving, and I was uh, kind of like interested at that first part where he was uh, uh, talking about uh, religion. Mm. 
understood. I was going to ask about that. Uh, the caller drive set. Well, hopefully you were driving safely. Uh, the caller at six two six zero. Did you have commentary that you wanted to share? Oh, uh, hi, um, all. Uh, this is Dr. Mania. Um, I just wanted to make a comment in regards to um, the whole uh, question regarding um, us enslaving ourselves. I do. I have an issue with that also. I'm a student of uh, Dr. John Henry Clark, and um, we always questioned that. Um, you know, he always put that into context as far as us, um, even if he did enslave ourselves, it wasn't chattel slavery. It was totally a different system. But um, I just wanted to make a comment in regards to, um, I watched a uh, documentary with, um, what was it, Henry Louis Gates, I think it is. Is that his name? The one that does the documentary. Um, he went over to Africa, and he actually literally, um, he was uh, interviewing a, a, a tribe over in Africa that was supposed to be descendants of... Um, of uh, our ancestors that enslaved, um, helped to enslave other Africans. And I think it was supposed to be a Muslim tribe, but like even with that, even seeing that, um, just like Ivy was saying and like you were saying, and just based on like the information, you can never be too sure about that either because um, you would think that there would be, I think, they, if I'm not mistaken, I can't recall exactly, I think the uh, documentary was on PBS, and I'm not sure if there's actual documentation, because there should be some type of documentation showing, um, or there should be records um, if this did actually happen. I don't know if he was, I can't recall if that, you know, if they had the documentation or not, but these, he was literally... Um, uh, interviewing these um, individuals from this tribe, and they were discussing the history of them enslaving their own people, you know, which is, you know, us, basically. That's what they were doing. And I thought it was pretty interesting also when he was, uh, when Zora um, asked uh, him about the um, religion. And she said, um, didn't you have a um, God before um um, I think Jesus, before we got there, and he said, yeah, we had a God, but we didn't know he, a God had a son. We wasn't um, uh, illiterate. And where did it, you know, where did all this whole, well, the whole concept about, uh, you know, um, uh, God having a son and, and Jesus and all that, we all know that that's, well, most of us should know that that's, you know, that's a plagiarism from Kemet. But I think with um, him, he just basically got the story. Um, all of that stuff was basically um, um, told to him by the mass by his slave master because we already did have a concept of God and without the European before the European even came over there, and they just basically um, uh, uh, forced their dogma on us and made us accept their concept of God so they can control us. So. Um, that's all I really had to, that was my only input that I wanted to put into the um, uh, the call tonight. And I'll meet my line, and thank you. Much obliged, Draftomania. Were there anybody that we missed, anybody who's not been able to share after the conclusion of the second audio segment? Anybody that has a hand up? Uh, I have something to contribute. 
Jay in St. Louis. Uh, I wanted to um, offer a reading recommend uh, or just a recommendation in general to uh, to Ivan. I am very sympathetic uh, to your position, and I share your skepticism. I think it's healthy, and I encourage it. Um, but I also um, think, uh, think uh, writers like uh, Milkar Cabral, he actually wrote something called On National Liberation and Culture. Uh, he's from Guinea-Bissau. Uh, but he wrote about how strategic and scientific white people are and how they were in conquering the continent, going first sending theologians and um, missionaries to preach the gospel. And on the side, these missionaries were decoding African languages, um, studying the family structure, marriage, wedding ceremonies. Same practices happen here with uh, notoriously the Lakota people who uh, are now have been dispossessed and moved in the, the area known as South Dakota. Um, so there's that. And then I also wanted to speak to uh, the, I think the appreciation I can have for Kusolo, right? Kusolo? I think it's Kasula. Kasula. Kosula, okay. Uh, so his story, his whole ex exhibition of uh, pre-colonial um, African culture uh, and governance and state authority, I think all of these things are valuable to have. We often talk about, you know, we had a culture before, traditional African culture. I think it's valuable to even consider it um, because having it... Um, kind of explain and give him more detail, I think, really allows us to reflect on the cultural genocide that the people who were born in the United States actually experienced, that kind of um, generational disconnect. Um, and while he's embodying it in one lifetime, I think it's very interesting. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's, all, that's all I wanted to say. Much obliged, Jay in St. Louis. Uh, any other folks have commentary that they want to share? Anybody that we missed? Did we nab everybody? Grand. Uh, so we will have one extra week to discuss, uh, I guess, and get more information about how he was enslaved what that process was like for him. Uh, he, they, many folks that have uh, written reviewed about the book have said that his memory is pretty good in terms of details and matching up some of the things that he's talking about. Uh, his memory is supposed to be pretty accurate, accurate. I thought when he talks at the beginning, Kosula, when he sees Zora Neale Hurston come in to hang out with him again, and he's so happy to see her, it looks like his eyes are tearing up, and he says, <clears throat> uh, I so lonely. My wife, she left me since the 1908 Cujo all by itself. That isolation, I mean, this is, you know, 19, what was it, 1920s, I think, 1930s, that this is uh, taking place. And he's talking about that sense of isolation and disconnection that is rampant right now. 2018. That's a big reason why the broadcast tomorrow compensatory call in why it exists. Uh, people saying, particularly as they get accurate information about racism, white supremacy, uh, that they do not have access, don't have other folks uh, to talk to, end up feeling very lonely.
that is by design system of white supremacy. Uh, I appreciated the commentary about religion. The question anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston to ask him uh, the the question: uh, How come uh, you don't? Uh, she she asked him, uh, "Why did you ask if we had God in Africa?" And she. Where, I'm sorry, Cujo gives his explanation, uh, explanation, Kasula gives the explanation and saying that we were not ignorant, uh, but we just didn't know about God having a son uh, and the religion of white supremacy. That's really all he's talking about uh, right there in the Adam and Eve and everything else that he uh, goes into. Um, let's see. I thought I just had a great appreciation. I mentioned this before the whole watermelons uh, for the number of times, uh, like just going to talk to someone over and over and again, them going way afield from what you came to talk about uh, and talking about other things. Uh, and I'm not talking about his uh, African references uh, and things that were happening, the stories, some of that comes up in uh, the first two chapters. Uh, but apparently, from what I've read reviews, he would just, you know, talk about all kinds of things uh, in life. Like she would come and ask him a direct question and he would be off talking about this or playing in the garden and, you know, just on his own time. But like for her to go back repeatedly and to talk to him over and over again and to record and get just extraordinary details uh, about what he was saying uh, to have that much regard, that much value for his life and experience, I just think is uh, incredible. Uh, the the scholarship, the the labor uh, of Zora Neale Hurston in this work, uh, I really appreciated hearing all of the details uh, that he gave uh, about his ancestors and some of the traditions uh, in that area. Really appreciated that um, context context especially when she gets kind of impatient like you know i didn't ask to hear about all that it's like hey I'm, I'm trying to give you a little context so that you can understand uh better and really i mean to hear all of this to hear how this gets interrupted man because uh, i haven't read this so i don't you know know where the the interruption comes uh in this narrative to where he gets stolen but that's got to be coming up soon I, I mean the book is not that long so we got to be getting to it soon um let's see what else did i have I really appreciated her capturing the language. Uh, I think some of the reviews that I read, I was a little concerned. Uh, they said it was difficult, I guess, hearing it uh, or maybe even reading it. I don't know uh, that it was it was a little difficult at first to adjust, but I have not really found it to be problematic. I have the book in front of me, too. So, I mean, if I get really confused, but I haven't really found it to be problematic, even if I just was listening. Uh, or I guess I can, once I get my one more thought in, I'll ask that. Any of the folks that just have the book, has that been an issue, just listening and being able to follow along? Or has it been uh, difficult? Because some folks did say it took a little, it took a little adjustment. Uh, I think Jay in St. Louis uh, had mentioned uh, palm oil was one of the major major uh, products that was being alluded, alluded along with black bodies uh, from the continent. And that was mentioned prominently uh, in the section uh, in chapter two uh, of the reading. Uh, any or I guess any of the folks that do not have the book and have been dependent on just listening to the audio, has it been difficult to follow or is it not an issue you can you can understand uh, Kasula without problem? 
Can you hear? Yes, ma'am. Uh, it's been great for me, and I like the way that she captured even um, Kasulo's um, um, his 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 accent. And uh, thanks, Jay, from St. Louis. Uh, I'm definitely gonna check that out. I hope everybody on the line has a great weekend, and that you guys have as good a class as you can with these race soldiers. I'll meet my line. No molestation accusations is a good class. Uh, any of the other folks who've not heard, uh, or if you don't have the book, so you're just dependent on the audio, has it been difficult to follow? Uh, I would say what? negative. Got a negative from Jay in St. Louis. What was the question? Has it been difficult uh, with the peculiar dialect of Kasula? Has it been difficult to follow or... Not an issue at all. You're able to understand what he's saying. No problem. Uh, I would say if you really uh, put your focus towards it, you can you can pick up what's going on. Okay. I don't think it's. I good. haven't had an issue with it. Oh, my fault. No issue. You said no issue. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, there's a couple of things I might have to read, like you know twice but that's about it i can understand it okay i i didn't have an issue with it i thought at first that some of the binoculars and the words that he used was going to be really you know like old you know old phrases like yes skinny (laughs) replacing help saying hope for help and, you know, different things that uh, a lot of the people from uh, those southern states, you know, the older people used to uh, the, what had happened in transition from, you know, wherever they came from to uh, English. And it was very, you had to have some, some type of experience in order to, you know, understand what they're talking about. But in his case, I think she did a lot of the uh, interpretation because there is no misunderstanding what he's saying. I don't think it's a problem. Mm. Appreciate that, Mr. Demi for, yeah, I think even maybe a little bit at the beginning, but I think once you've heard him for a minute or so, like, I think your, your ears adjust. At least I think that's the case with me and we should all be great by next week. Cause it seems some of us will have the book. So we'll all be good by next Friday. Anywho, uh, if you have additional thoughts, questions, write them down. We will be here for one and a half more sessions. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. Uh, you can drop an email until justice at gmail.com. If you have thoughts or something you would like to share, if you catch up in the archives, we can read your commentary next Friday. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call call in previously mentioned uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. We will catch up on what has gone down over the last seven days. Talk about tacky whites had to pretend for a few minutes that LeBron James was not just another Negro. Mm. Tomorrow we'll catch up uh, on what has gone down. Thanks to all the folks who tuned in. Could have been doing a lot of other things with our Friday summer Friday evening, but trying to understand, get a better grasp of racism, white supremacy and how to solve this problem. Uh, I would encourage folks, if you are going to go out and have a good time or take 
yoga teacher training. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, Dr. Welsing and many other folks that we esteem, John Henry Clark, I am sure, uh, would say, hey, it is dangerous. Let's make sure that our brain computer is functioning op optimally uh, so that we can make the best possible decisions to try to keep ourselves as safe as possible, uh, us and any folks we might be responsible for. Certainly, if you're going to be in a vehicle, driver or passenger, you want to be sober and buckled up every time. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Try not to be on the phone if you're going to be in the vehicle as well. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus